Hello and welcome to the Back Page Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts. I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how's your week been? Have you been getting up to anything exciting this week? I just went to London and ate uh, some spicy tacos and looked at some old artwork that they put inside some rooms and turned them into moving animations in order to make them relevant to a younger audience. That's what I did on my weekend. So how about how about you? Sounds very exotic. Um, I I went to something very weird, which I I can't really explain. A day of film screenings to assist with a film society. It just meant I watched through three films in a row. A very slow film about peach farmers in Spain. Right. A documentary about Nan Golden, the photographer who was kind of going after the Sacklers for being um, Oxycontin pushing fuckers. Yeah. So that was good. And a comedy from like an American Ghanaian actress slash director, which I didn't think was very good. (laughs) See, I'd have called the middle one Dope Sick IRL. That's what I would have gone with. Dope Sick IRL. (laughs) Yeah. Here's some exciting gossip for you. Oh, yeah. The pasta hut that steals electricity from the living room. Yeah. uh, Has been sighted. It's currently parked in Queen's Park. What? Like, yeah. it reappeared. These things really are like Xur and Destiny. These, like, weird little stalls. Like, where yeah. are they siphoning electricity from now? Like, someone's well, that's like, a, camper that's, van? That's what I was wondering. <laughs> I was like, if I was the Francis Hotel, I'd be checking all my plug sockets. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. That, I mean, they did good... Pa- Wait, did I eat the pasta there? No, I didn't. I just wanted to eat the pasta. Yeah, you told me it was good. It was uh, up and gone by the time I had a chance <laughs> to tell you one anecdote about it. Oh, did we talk about the fact that JC's Kitchen is no longer in its new, its current spot? It's moved to a different fucking town. Have we talked about that? <laughs> right. Yeah, we hadn't mentioned that, but I know that that is a thing that's happened. Yeah, so JC's Kitchen, I mean, more recent listeners might not even know this as part of our law, but uh, we joked for a long time that JC's Kitchen is like a food stand in Bath, um, make phenomenal, like, you know, marinated meat, basically, served in wraps and in bubble and squeak. Really good, became like an object of fascination for our listeners um, because we just talked about it over and over again. Um, recently has moved to Trowbridge, I think, which is, you know, like not Bath, um, where they've been based for years and years. And um, that is apparently acceptable. They have a permanent location, Matthew, so they fulfilled that part of what we wanted, except they did it in a different town. How are you oh, feeling about that? Oh, God. It's like the old um, <laughs> monkey's poor wish, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I just wanted so. to have a regular shop. I didn't say Bath! God damn it! <laughs> um, congratulations to the people of Trowbridge. Yeah. What a treat for them. But I'm sad to see him abandon. Well, I don't know if we were the OG site. <laughs> Maybe he abandoned somewhere else before then. Maybe he's. So other people, have you been burnt by JC's Kitchen? Let us know. <laughs> yeah, like a, some kind of JC's Kitchen helpline. You know what I mean? Call <laughs> in and we'll just counsel you about it. Uh, that's tough. That's tough because the Thai hut closed too. So that's like two yeah. good food stalls that have just fucked off now. Which it, that's tough. Apocalypse on the good food places. Yeah, the jacket potato place still stands. Like, what is? Where is the justice in that? You know what I mean? <laughs> and goulash. And fucking um, goulash. Yeah. I, I mean, really, the big news is uh, I am absolutely obsessed with that new Tears of the Kingdom trailer. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Um. That. Sorry, I thought you were going to talk about the sides at uh, Milk Bun again. But... No, I and I am obsessed with that. But um, I'm currently more obsessed with Tears of the Kingdom trailer. I always had faith this was going to be a great thing, but I d- I definitely feel this was the trailer where everyone was like, "Holy shit, we're getting a new Zelda in three weeks," and kind of woke everyone up and showed everyone loads of stuff which wasn't in Breath of the Wild. That's I'm just incredibly hyped for it, and the music is magnificent. 
that new sax thing. I listen to that trailer <laughs> at least a couple of times a day. You're not really a guy who tweets about game stuff much, so I knew that sax meant a lot to you when you did at least like three tweets about it. I thought, like, oh, it sounds so fucking good. It just sounds <laughs> so good. Like it's properly earwormed into my head. Like I'm thinking about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just praying it's not a piece of music they've only written for the trailer. I really hope Mad Sax Jams is going to be a big thing in the game too. Did someone speculate that like that? <laughs> that's music you can play with an instrument you create using different uh, items in the world. Um, <laughs> Just build, build your own saxophone with a crafting system. It's like one of the five best trailers probably ever. It just has a broad sweep of mechanics in the game. Um, I must say that I found the even like remote, well, I'm not so sure about this game, but whole thing like completely tedious because I just thought surely yeah. like you you just you know your faith is bought by the fact that you played breath of the wild and they made a sequel to it like what are we yeah. doing what are we doing here element but yeah it was nice to see uh, a bit of optimism on the timeline for once instead of people talking oh. about acquisitions or other boring things so yeah optimism sort of mixed with like the, the most insane jealousy i've ever had for <laughs> anyone who gets to review that game do we make a pyrrhic run at trying to get nintendo to send us copies of this is it even worth it like it worked for no more heroes 3 but should we try this yeah, i don't know like i think it's what i mean this is probably a behind the scenes conversation really but, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> we have um, we like to have these on there sometimes it's tough though like they're very particular about review code these days right there's quite a, an elaborate process you have to go through to get code onto a switch yeah. The fact that we uh, topped the video game podcast in the UK chart. Yeah. Um, like that, that as a screenshot makes the podcast sound a lot more important than it is if you don't really know how the charts work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, never mind we had like 85 more downloads. It's like, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> the chart placements. Wow. 42 places up. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they are a little so bit um, maybe I can maybe I can trick someone into giving us that game with a screenshot of that. I feel like that curries. Tears of the Kingdom voucher they put out that knocks 15 quid off has like restarted the UK economy basically like that thing is going to keep this country out of recession basically because <laughs> everyone just pre-ordered that game at once I think from there um so uh good I'm not getting paid by curries by the way but it was just fucking handy because it means you can pay 45 quid as opposed to you know 55 quid or whatever so, so isn't it a 70 quid game a 60 uh, quid 60 quid I think yeah um, yeah so, I mean yeah. for that sax worth it <laughs> yeah can't wait for that should be very very good we have at least like two zelda episodes planned next month uh one is going to be just two giant men play tears of the kingdom the other one matthew's trying to get a guest from the n64 era to talk about reviewing zelda games it seems to be a bit of a mixed effort matthew maybe we need to re uh <laughs> re sort of like um reselect a target to make it a bit easier on ourselves but it would be cool to do that next month wouldn't it so fingers crossed yeah yeah uh, <laughs> okay good that's the uh that's the off-air meeting complete on air let's go to uh i've got one other thing to talk about before we get into this episode matthew so patreon we just went out and said to everyone here's what we're making on patreon for the rest of the year i wanted mm-hmm. to recap it here very quickly you know people will know that we don't have ads on the podcast we are ad free we are patreon supported and you know we're we have no plans to change that but basically, we like to tell people in advance what we're doing on the Patreon for the year so they know what they're paying for. We've got two tiers. We've got the, the £1 tip jar tier and the £4.50 XL tier. And the XL tier is where we do two bonus podcasts a month. So I'm just going to fire through these, Matthew. So the XL episode in May is uh, 50 things that make us go Uno in games. So that should be good. Um, anyone uh, who knows uh, our Patreon will, will see that we did uh, 50 things that make us go Ooh Yeah 
in games in the um uh like a, f- a few months ago so this will be a nice sequel to that we've got the best tv episodes ever on the xxl feed looking Ooh. forward to that one too bit of a deeper dive into tv which you know we love waffling on about june we've got xl episode is the best boss battles volume two colon surprise second health bar that was a matthew castle classic there very good um xxl that month is the best indiana jones things we're going to talk about movies uh the video games and also the um uh young indiana jones chronicles which matthew has seen um apparently so i'm looking forward to discussing that um july xl games that deserve a remake xxl mission impossible movies ranked matthew castle back on his bullshit can't wait august xl best video game levels volume 2 xxl an episode about board games we don't know the exact shape of that yet but matthew was like i think i could talk about some board games and i was like yeah let's do it sounds good man xl for september matthew and samuel do an escape room and the best gaming prisons that's um there's a surprising amount of gaming prisons that should be good fun xxl Matthew is back on his Asian crime fiction bullshit. That is the name of the episode, not just a, a description of the episode. October, XL, the best Resident Evil moments, a chance to go back and to discuss the whole series. It's been a, more than two years now since we've done that, so it seemed like about time for a bit of a rehash, I guess. Uh, XXL, the top 10 Martin Scorsese movies. We ascend into full, full-blown, white podcaster guy self-parody. Let's go. It's going to be good, Matthew. I can't wait. Uh, November, XL episode, the old Hitman Games episode. We're going to talk about everything prior to the um, Hitman 2016, so look forward to that. XXL, David Fincher movies ranked once again, self-parody, white podcaster guys. December, XL, the best and worst console launches. XXL, the best TV shows of 2023. So that's what you get, basically, if you support us. And uh, you help to make the regular podcast go as well. Matthew, any thoughts on that lot? When you hear them back, it is it is sort of a parody, isn't it, of <laughs> what podcast people talk about. It's good. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Fucking hell. That's a lukewarm sell, isn't it? Oh, uh, yeah, it's like whatever podcast guys do. But, uh, yeah, good, good. <laughs> I know it's a Sunday night. It's tough to do a. You know, I just an watched a two-hour film about peach farmers being forced <laughs> off their land. <laughs> uh, amazing. Yeah, that wouldn't get my pulse racing. I'll be honest. Um, okay, oh, this we won't episode... be doing an Excel on that. <laughs> I don't know, man. Twenty twenty-five. I might be out of ideas by then. Um, okay, this episode then. The best games of twenty fifteen. If you are a long-time listener of the podcast, you'll know this is a continuing series for us. We're going through every year that we worked in a games media, and we plan on going a bit further back once we uh, catch up to the modern day. So um, this episode, all about the best games of 2015, a big year for big games, um, an exciting year to get into. And uh, for those who might not know this, um, the episode format as well, or just to recap, if you haven't listened to one for a while, our last one was um, January with the best games of 2014. Basically what we do is... We have a preamble where we set the scene, discuss a a few news items from 2015 and what we were up to in games media. Matthew was uh, working on OXM this year. I was working on PC Gamer. We'll talk about that to offer a bit of context, I guess, from that sort of ground floor making a games magazine in the UK element. And uh, yeah, in the section two, we'll get into the um, our top 10 games of that year. So it's an all encompassing look at what was going on in 2015. So Matthew, to start with. What were you up to in 2015? Uh, Still learning the ropes on OXM and settling back to life in Bath. I bought a house in 2015, um, but it was a a fixer-upper? Was it doer-upper? Yeah, fixer-upper, I think. So began like a year of 
sort of tromping over and doing little weird bits and bobs. It was like this absolute kind of like time capsule from the, I don't know, 60s, 70s. My distinct memory is stripping up wallpaper while listening to the podcast Mystery Show. Do you remember that? Vaguely? What's the... What it was the... an amazing podcast from someone who was serial adjacent, and it only ran for like eight episodes. It was one of the classic, I've got eight amazing ideas for a show, but beyond that, nothing. I like this um, one, except we did it for 123 episodes. <laughs> Our first eight were, like, decent, but these were extraordinary. It's the person who... She did the thing about how tall is Jake Gyllenhaal. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time going, man, that's a good podcast, while also peeling big strips of paper from a wall. That's my 2015. Yeah, so last time we talked about um, 2014, that was such a turbulent year, our future where we both worked. The... um Closed one London office and reopened another one much closer to Paddington, uh, but it was a lot smaller as well. And uh, a lot of editorial teams were basically told um, you can move to Bath or your job won't exist. And then um, most people didn't yes. move to Bath. Yeah. It was just you and Kate Gray, I believe, on OXM. So, um, yes. yeah, so you were kind of you came back. Um, this was a year, definitely the year that you and me became pals because yeah. I remember. Well, for, there were there were two things. There was a trip we went on, which I'm sure we'll discuss um, shortly, and there was also the time that I was redesigning PC Gamer on a Saturday. You were in, and we both went to the Cur de Lai in a tiny bath pub um, for a drink afterwards on a Saturday afternoon. And I feel like from there, you and I sort of built a little little friendship from there. Um, <laughs> is that how you remember it? Us meeting at that point? Uh yeah, vaguely. Um, like, I, I remember the office stuff better than the Coeur d'Alene stuff. I don't even know where that... Where the fuck is that? It's, like, down one of, like, that 19 alleyways that are in the town centre. Like, the, um... Oh, it's, yeah. yeah. it's opposite... Uh, is it opposite the Butchers? No, it's slightly further back, I think. It's just... One of Bath's many diagon alleys. Like, <laughs> yeah, basically. Offshoots. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, yeah, I do, I do remember us becoming better pals, which was good, because, um, yeah, OXM was, was like quite a difficult mag to make um this is quite a weird year this is really quite a weird episode in that i basically have like no you know i go from being a nintendo guy up until 2014 to having like no involvement with nintendo whatsoever yeah. and i had to sort of submerge myself so quickly into xbox and get my head around it in order to make their official magazine like uh, you know i'll tell you in advance there's not a single nintendo game on my list Oof. which is like a first yeah um and you know looking across the list like i don't you know there's a lot of there are some good games that i played later but in the actual year itself i don't know if i really played anything i reviewed um the the very bad plasticine kirby game for games master right um but it was uh yeah like quite a quite a weird sort of recalibrating trying to get myself into xbox i was also playing a lot of pc for the first time since my teenage years because the the previous christmas uh catherine built me a gaming pc for my christmas present um like best christmas present ever that is incredibly thoughtful and sweet yeah 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 and it was like a bit you know this is back when she was she was sort of like doing hardware stuff so she was you know kind of really knew what she was doing and and it was like a bit of a beast and yeah I was actually playing a lot of stuff on PC and then grumbling about it on Xbox. I became one of those boring bastards. <laughs> um, but that was, um, yeah, PC was like a big, big part of my life this year. Interesting, yeah. Because I, I suppose like we never, 
we never talk that much about your relationship with PC gaming, but it's obviously mm. like in the last few years, it's been oh, basically since 2015, I guess, it's been a core part of like what you've been doing um, mm. in some form. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's it, it's interesting. My 2015 was, by comparison, this is probably the most settled I ever was on PC Gamer. Um, right. I basically like had... It's quite a, a quiet and sort of like slightly lonely year, I guess. Um, this isn't like a sort of boohoo, poor me year. But this is definitely like a year where I remember having a day off where I just watched Daredevil season one in its entirety. And that was like right. a th- that was like a, an accepted use of a day off. And not, not that I'm judging people who would do such a thing now. Uh, Daredevil acceptable. I'd say any of the other Netflix Marvel series. Oh, yeah. It gets a little, a little flakier. Yeah, I'd have been devastated if I'd had a day off to watch Iron Fist, for example. But um, fortunately, that wasn't the case. <laughs> everyone, everyone saw that one being rubbish coming from a mile off, so that was fine. Um, yeah, so I sort of like future stuff had kind of calmed down slightly. I think like basically there was a tiny office in London, and then like two floors worth of people in a four floor building in Bath and then it was like the company was sort of started from a larval state again before it became what it is now which is you know this like massive massive thing that owns loads of different brands so it was just a year of like relative calm I had bought a PS4 the previous year but to be honest most of my gaming was on PC still um but it was like a yeah I was just trying to be as like immersed as I could in PC gaming because I've discussed this before but like coming to PC gamer I was uh, a little bit like sort of unsure of myself slightly like I didn't have the, as deep a knowledge as some of the other people there because I mm. like moved over from multi-format games journalism and I've always been someone who like is a bit of a jack of all trades when it comes to games which I think is a strength when you're making a podcast like this but it means that like if you ask me Samuel what's your favorite MMO I'd be like I've never played an MMO I'm sorry I just haven't I just <laughs> not my genre um maybe I'd enjoy FF14 but I haven't um haven't really bothered with that so yeah this was like the most settled there wasn't a load of like status quo shaking stuff going on this year on pc gamer it was really interesting because we founded the pc gaming show this year so uh for oh, those right. who might not know like the e3 sort of time frame pc pc specific show is a thing that was created primarily by tim and evan in the u.s on pc gamer but i worked on it too i played i think i played a, a small but um important part in its uh, creation and i'm you know, here it's still running eight years later, and I'm outlived E3. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm, you know, I'm pr- I'm pretty proud of having a, a a part in that because we saw that like PC gaming was not being well served at E3. It didn't have its own place where you could talk about that stuff, where that audience, you know, who's those tens of millions of people using Steam every day could find out what's coming up specifically on that platform. So we we built it and we did it in such Ooh. a tight time frame, and then. Over the years, it's just gotten more and more refined. So that's part of what I did this year, Matthew. But um, you're on OXM then. Like, can you remember which games went you were cover this year, just to give people an idea of you know, uh, what was going down? Yeah, I've been, <laughs> I've been rereading some OXMs this evening, actually. And, like, it's actually, it, it's it's not bad, <laughs> the magazine. Like, it's not one I've returned to a lot, you know. I, I, I think it's quite well written. I think it's quite funny. There's actually a lot of, like, weird jokes in it, which I don't remember at all. Like, the back pages are sort of surprisingly still good which is you know very rare for back pages that's the back page concept of a magazine not this podcast <laughs> um thanks clear that up 
Yeah, just, yeah, that's alright. But, like, the messaging of the mag is an awful lot of, like, well, Halo, Halo 5's coming, and holy shit, it's the year of Halo 5, and, like, Xbox was winning this year with Halo 5, and, you know, move over every other game, it's Halo 5. <laughs> um, which, knowing kind of what Halo 5 sort of launched as, and the kind of reception it launched to, and it's just general lack of impact in the greater gaming landscape, seems a bit daft. Now, I've got a lot of, um... <laughs> my e3 cover line or maybe it was the post e3 issue was xbox owns 2015 right halo 5 guardians leads the greatest lineup in xbox history <laughs> well that's what phil spencer said on stage at that e3 conference so yeah. you're probably just echoing that sentiment yeah, yeah but like any indicator of how that holds up if you actually open the mag and go to that e3 feature it starts with halo 5 guardians as promised yeah um but the next entry was Minecraft for HoloLens. <laughs> <laughs> Did that even come out? Could you even buy HoloLens? Was oh, that fuck come? knows. What an absolute bust that was. Then there was a bit about <laughs> Dean Hall's Ion. <laughs> like, <laughs> also in that issue in which Xbox was owning 2015, there was a one-page news story about the wireless adapter for Xbox controllers on PC. <laughs> <laughs> wow, big news, massive. E3 month, and that's what goes in the news section. Yeah, I That's mean, got big, we did it before E3 actually happened energy to it, you know? Yeah, definitely some of it. Definitely some of it. But yeah, Halo 5 was on the cover at least twice by itself, but in a big way and two others. Fallout 4, we lent on a lot. Then there was a bit of Star Wars Battlefront and a bit of Black Ops 3. I think we actually had a pretty good year. Like, I think every other issue would would, would sort of actually hold its own and do okay sales-wise. Yeah. So people thought I knew what I was doing, where actually it was just that there was so much further for Fallout 4 that yeah. it was, like, impossible to fail. Like, I, I'd put Fallout 4 all over the wallet. You know, regardless of what was on the cover, there were so many wallets, which was just fucking Vault Boy giving his big thumbs up, um, <laughs> and it worked. Like people just fell for that again and again. So yeah, yeah, sort of like that was. It was funny as well because I remember uh, us having a conversation about how like you tried to get Darth Vader or a Stormtrooper on every cover in some place. So like <laughs> because Battlefront, um, which was like properly revealed this year, released this year was such a massive massive deal people were just so hungry for a new star wars game yeah. and, it, and it was the force awakens year so yeah I, I, anticipation could not have been higher for a game that was ultimately like you know fine and and very quite anemic content wise um but yeah like massive massive hype there and yeah i definitely remember you being like yeah popped a darth vader here popped another one here <laughs> <laughs> on like different covers and I admired it, frankly, because I remember this similarly on PC Gamer. This was a year where, I like, the first couple of issues, I feel like, like one issue didn't sell so well, and I was like, okay, great, this is going to be a great a great year. And then there just seemed to be an unbroken run from spring to the end of the year where the mag just kept selling. And that was yeah. clearly because we finally had some fucking games to talk about. We didn't have that in 2014 as much. But 2015 was chocker. Do you mind if I run through the covers we did in PC Gamer this year, Matthew? Yeah, go for it, yeah. Yeah, so January 2015, so technically the end of the previous year, was Overwatch, so, you know, massive deal. That had just been revealed, and we were the first on shelves with a cover, which was great. Felt like that's held up well as a editorial decision. A Total War Attila cover comes next, um, with the future of Total War in the headline. That was definitely, I remember that being like, a, I need something, and there's a new Total War coming out, so let's, uh, let's go with that. Then you get to Just Cause 3, that was um, when it was revealed, 
field. We were basically on shelves. That was cool. It ended up being a game that people didn't seem to love compared to the second one, but was, you know, mm. uh, sort of like a still still an extension of what they were doing with the second one in a series that people had a big appetite for returning. Uh, Fable Legends, a game that didn't come out. That was next. I remember a big thing around this time was GTA 5 came to PC in 2015, so that was a huge deal. But I remember like just chasing <laughs> a GTA 5 cover that didn't happen over the course of about three or four months and how right. stressful that was, and then pulling a cover out of my ass when that didn't happen. That's what this Fable Legends cover was. But um, God bless Xbox, they get me, got me all the access I need. Then the game was cancelled, what, like a year later or something? I don't know. Um, quite nice art, Fable Legends. Lovely art, yeah. The character and, art was really striking. And notably, quite a big part of their E3 conference this year. So they must have been pretty certain it was happening for quite a while. Um, um, oh yeah, we did a big interview with old. Um, oh, who was the guy who used to wear sunglasses on stage? Uh oh, um, Kudo Sonoda is that his name? Yeah, and yeah. a big chunk of that was him talking about. You know, it was kind of like, well, Fable Legends is almost here. What's next for Lionhead? And it was all kind of like, your oh, things are looking so great for this team. You know, firing all cylinders, and you're just like, what, what? Yeah, that's tough. Like, it's, yeah, it's sort of like, I think it's interesting because when you watch the Xbox E3 conference back, it's like, it's next to Sea of Thieves in the running order. And you're kind of there thinking, maybe Microsoft or both these studios is like, oh, this is their chance to, like, you know, basically thrive on Xbox One. And one studio truly did, and the other didn't get the chance to. And it's mm. in, it's just interesting in retrospect. So uh, yeah, it was a really nice looking cover, and it did sell well. So people were obviously interested in reading about mm. it. Possibly stuck a big GTA Five logo top left, um, <laughs> and, um, and Darth Vader was coming out of the <laughs> Fable Hero's mouth. <laughs> yeah, we made a sword into a lightsaber. You know, just to really underline the point. Um, Rainbow Six Siege uh, was next, and a game I wasn't interested in, but um, people seemed to think it was a big deal, um, and did it was actually a cool game. Like, um, and it has a, had quite extended life. Star Wars Battlefront was next after that this might have been the best-selling issue of piece of game i ever worked on it had uh deus ex and gta 5 in the in the hot zones of the cover we did a complete history of star wars games guess who fucking enjoyed putting that in the magazine um, <laughs> um total war warhammer was revealed next that was fucking massive for us on pc gamer huge deal when that game um broke cover um hitman 2016 was on the august cover matthew straight after e3 um xcom 2 was on our cover in september 2015 so you know, huge stuff here. Then um, we had a Doom cover in October with a big Fallout 4 hit on it too. Um, and then we had like a Deus Ex Mankind Divided cover and a Star Citizen cover with Mark Hamill's face on the cover to uh, close out that year. So pretty, oh, pretty God, big yeah, stuff. I forgot, I forgot there was the Star Citizen celebrity reveal. Yeah, we like actually like one of our writers went on the motion capture stage and like interviewed a bunch of people that's probably i think that's like the most access anyone's ever had to that that's that's still not out right no it's not it's like a single player some a uh, single player campaign but the the game the multiplayer game is out and um is like an ongoing thing so yeah it was it was quite a big big year for games and so it just felt like it was quite a nice status quo and it was i feel like every mag in the company was kind of doing all right this year because we were just like riding this huge wave of stuff it was tough to like not have something i do remember when like battlefront was announced everyone was just fighting to have it on their cover and to get on shelves first with it i think like just pretty much every mag went with star wars in the end in some form matthew is how i remember it but uh yeah, yeah. It, it was a little bit sort of wild west in terms of i don't think there was actually any story connected to any of it i think people were all working from the same information and the same like three bits of art and 
there was a little bit of like, well, if you can make it happen, you can make it happen. Like, we definitely started doing covers for games, like, without the blessing of the people who were making them. Yeah. So it's like, it, like we did that, and, and that, that carried on to, like, I remember we were doing, like, Mass Effect Andromeda covers based on, like, fucking nothing. And you're like, well, how did, how did this happen? But if they don't say the- no, then... Mm. Yeah, it was interesting, because... I, I remember, like, we, I think we had like Where's at um, on PC Gamer went to like a Battlefront event, and so we had some original a- access and interview quotes. And I was like, "Yes, we can make a cover out of this. That's uh, that's good." But it definitely was a kind of like race to get that giant Atta image on the cover, and that Atta image was all that existed for ages and ages. Ah, <laughs> yeah. uh, good times. Uh, so just, yeah, just stick another Darth Vader on top of it. <laughs> That's the secret to making that art really, really uh, sing. Yeah, yeah. So that side, Matthew, I, this was a year we redesigned PC Gamer, um, which was quite stressful. We didn't change it like drastically, but we gave the front end of the mag a bit of a um, shot in the arm, which it really needed, and updated all the old fonts and stuff. And I was very, very proud of the end product. We saved it for our top 100 issue when we do the, uh, you know, basically like we would sort of like argue politely on the team that what are the 100 best games to play now and mm. then um we put that out and it would do it's sort of like a big deal every year basically so mm. redesigned the mag in time for that and uh was so proud of the end result and uh, i think i mentioned before um, there was a missing word in my editorial intro which kind of uh, sums it all up really just uh one thing to spoil everything <laughs> was it top or 100 uh <laughs> welcome to the top yeah and then just like a triple space and a full stop that's uh, that's tough um and then yeah so and then we won the um the gma this year the last gmas they did for um best print uh brand or whatever it was matthew best magazine so yeah i was super proud of of that as an achievement that was like this was like definitely the peak of me and magazines i should have just resigned after this really <laughs> terrible what about you on oaks did you feel like you made the mag your own this year or did do you have to wait until the redesign the next yeah, year to do the, that? the redesign like we were dead i think there's a bit more of us in there like there's a few more kind of like sillier sides and i think we repurposed some of the columns and news into sort of regular jokey bits that weren't there before like I say, some, the back pages were like surprisingly great. I, I think that was mostly the doing of Alex Dale. And this is also the year we hired Tom Stone, Kate Gray, our uh, staff writer who came over from O&M, left uh, early in the year. And then we hired Tom, who was just like one of one of the best people. Um, I love Tom's bits. My, my biggest regret with Tom is that he didn't get to work on Endgamer because he was a big Endgamer head and OXM was an Endgamer, but his application was like, I think if it had landed on anyone else's desk, they might not have interviewed him, but it was so, I was like, oh, this is someone who was really like me when I was on Endgamer. And it just absolutely, like, just laser-targeted got got through to me. So, you know, it sometimes does work out. But, he, yeah, just a real, a real like, mind. And the mag's full of all this weird stuff. Like, like I say, I remember it being a lot drier than it was, but I was just reading through it today, and there's all this, there's this great back page about all these... Um, uh, ga- it was the month Rare Replay came out, and it was all these rare games that didn't make it, that right. didn't make the cut. And they were all... <laughs> They all start off sounding like legit rare things, quite twee character pieces, right. and then all sort of twist into something really sinister or dark, <laughs> um, explaining why that they they didn't make the cut. Hang on, I'm going to read one. I'm going to read one of them to you that made me laugh. Um, this is probably going to sound terrible now and um, make me look idiotic. There was one that it was. <laughs> so there's a Photoshop of a man's face on a bit of meringue. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> right. To okay. Set the scene. Okay. Good. The game is called Pavlova Panic, and it says absolutely everybody adored this classic N sixty four game about a wisecracking meringue based dessert on a mission to be eaten by a hungry crow. But it'll never likely see re-release, as everything from level three on is just John Hurt reading Mein Kampf in its entirety. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> that really made me laugh, uh, seeing Mein Kampf that close to uh, Photoshop of some meringue. <laughs> um, yeah, like uh, that, you saying this has reminded me actually that this is the first year that on PC Gamer we did like the review of the back pages from that year and. For those who don't know, we we basically we put all our back page jokes up on the website and provide oh. commentary with them. And because we did that for the first time this year, I suddenly realised how bad they were. Looking at them all in ta- like in a row, I was like, "Although <laughs> well, these are really shit." Actually, <laughs> there was one really good one where I'm wearing an eye patch. That was good. Um, the rest were like quite dodgy, and um, <laughs> that was tough. We did a, a, a we did like a. A really fake, uh, like a fake uh, sort of wallpaper style magazine called Triangle with Adam Jensen on the cover. And I think it was just like, I don't know what the joke is really. <laughs> right. And like, there's a lot of that going on where you're like, I don't, um, I don't know what's going on. One of the funny ones actually is that like, um, is Batman Arkham Knight, which I don't know if people know this or remember this, but on PC it launched and then they took it off sale because it was running so badly. When they later put it back on sale, it was still running quite badly, I would say. But um, we basically did like Batman on his little wrist computer getting a refund for Arkham Knight on Steam. That was pretty good. But um, <laughs> the rest were like <laughs> were really shit. I just scrolled through them while you were talking about um, John Hurt um, Meringue. And um, it was it was tough, man. But uh, that we actually like we actually made them better because we saw the comments this year and was like, okay, the next year the jokes actually have to be jokes, and so we did we did improve them very gradually. Were there any others from this year that sort of jumped out to you? What, about pages, yeah. We did one about there was this story about they were trying to make Halo. They were talking about Halo Five multiplayer and how they were going to make it like a. a a nicer place with better community controls right and <laughs> there was a fat page thing about like that it was something like that like the age of teabagging is over and here's like 21 new kind of ritual humiliations <laughs> that are going to take off with halo 5 and one of them was just called crisping and it was to just eat them eat a very noisy mouthful of crisps down the mic at the person you just killed <laughs> which i just the word crisping really made me laugh and there was another one about perks in fallout 4 and one of the first perk was called look at my amazing hat <laughs> <laughs> it was just you have a big hat. <laughs> That's good. That's better uh, so, than all yeah, of mine from like, this year. Yeah. You know, at least one page of OXM was like relatively funny. <laughs> mine, I should add. No, that's good. I like that. Um, yeah, interesting. I don't think I even do. I even did. I even know that OXM had a back page gag. I guess like I wasn't paying enough attention. But uh, yeah, we changed when we redesigned it. We got rid of funny back page and just turned it into a um, like. Uh, developers picking their their five favorite games yeah that sounds, that sounds familiar uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so yeah no jokes there <laughs> okay good it's funny as well because i think it is the next it must be the next year where i remember being in some kind of like future town hall and uh declan who was one of my favorites of the uh managers we had at that time actually i quite like declan was like um 
uh, I know XM has been redesigned, and they have a whole um, a whole column about barrels. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was just like, wow, amazing. And then that, that was the first time I ever heard about the concept of Barrel Watch, Matthew, which I, I suppose we can say for the 2016 yeah, chat. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there's not much left to the imagination with that. <laughs> <laughs> so did you go on any fun trips in 2015, Matthew? Yeah, you mentioned a trip we went on, but I'm I'm actually like I'm just trying to think what the fuck was that? Just Cause Three and Baby Man. Oh my god! That was the trip. Oh, it was that, that of course. Yeah, yeah. I, was it like Hamburg we were in or yes. Hanover? Yeah, it was Hamburg. I thought it's not Hanover; it's Hamburg because yeah, yeah, yeah. Have we talked about that on the pod before? We talked about Baby Man before. I sort of like. I mean, that is the best bit of that trip. Yeah, we talked about Baby Man. We talked about the bit where I was so hungover the next day after the trip that I was sat there thinking, "I can't throw up." I'm the editor of PC Gamer. I can't throw up on a press <laughs> trip. That was like that was kind of my big memory from it. There was also that really cool guy from one of the broadsheet newspapers there, um, who like um, who we were both trying to be his mate. Remember that guy? That was like uh, that was quite funny. Um, oh, was he completely unfazed by Baby Man? Uh, he was. He got into Baby Man. He was like, a, he was a pretty chill dude. I think we were both like, it would be cool to have a friend like this in our lives. So let's just <laughs> gradually try and make friends with him. Um, it didn't really materialize. But the Baby Man thing was, uh, yeah, it was like a yeah. a large man with writing on his belly. Was that right? And he would, um, he basically just played lots of very, very European club bangers, including a remix of um, uh, the Iron Man theme. Is that right? <laughs> Is that my remembering it right, Matthew? Yes, that is right. But the weird thing about it is when we went to the club, there was a sign on the door that said, Baby Man, five euros. <laughs> and it was like, is this, are we the baby men? Like, is that what we're paying to cut? Is it like adults, children and baby man, five euros? It, it, it was just, and it was, we paid our money and went in. And then, yeah, lo and behold, a sort of avant-garde sort of jazz funk club act um <laughs> materialized and uh i had yeah one of the one of the better evenings i've had on a press trip it was absolutely amazing like it was um a really fun group of people like keza was there right as well yeah, well keza was the one who was like there's this like cool music shack sort of under a bridge somewhere that we should go to <laughs> yeah yeah and, and like, i was like oh this is a really bad idea i uh, i just didn't remember there, you being we saw reticent. baby man sign and you know that didn't kind of make me feel any better about it <laughs> i distinctly remember you being really reticent and like commenting on how out of place you were and then by the end of the night me looking over and seeing you dancing your ass off and thought <laughs> he's having a great time this has gone really as well as it could possibly go on a press trip um, yeah <laughs> it was really good do you remember this one like we were like in that hotel and there was sort of like some weird underground like town square that like a, a, an entrance opened and you went under the road and and that was the venue where we played just cause three do you am i remembering that right is that what you remember too oh, vaguely i mean baby man just overshadows so much of that <laughs> <trip>. <laughs> i went to e3 this year too but what about you do you go any, any any other trips besides that i, I went to crystal dynamics Oh, cool. um, to see Rise of the Tomb Raider, which was cool because uh, I got to talk to some of the Tomb Raider underworld old hands there about the Tomb Raider that I was actually interested in. They also had a strange office where they didn't have any blinds and it was all glass and they were quite high up in a skyscraper. So there was all this um, the sunlight coming through the windows was blinding. So they all worked under like huge umbrellas. It was like a sea of parasols. That was <laughs> That was quite weird. We also had a very traumatic taxi ride on the way back from uh, Crystal Dynamics to the hotel where the taxi turned up and it was covered in, like, disco lights. Right. And in the back, it had all these, like, miniature, like, 
sc- uh, screens plugged into games consoles, and it was like I'm the unlike the area's local games taxi. Like I'm famous for being the games taxi. Right. Um. So we were like, oh, this would be fun. But for some reason, like he was driving quite erratically, and the <laughs> Xbox PR, who was from the US Xbox team, I can't remember her name. Annoyingly kind of like challenged him on his erratic driving and he turned like super scary in the car with everyone and i remember oh, right. when we got back to the hotel and we got out the xbox pr just instantly burst into tears and it was just horrible it was one of those moments you're like what am i meant to do like what's the correct response here you know are you meant to like challenge this taxi driver or console uh, it was it was yeah a weird a weird and bad time the parasols made the feature the taxi didn't oh yeah um, I went to Kojima Productions, Los Angeles, which is where I've joined the ranks of IMDb. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Important. I previewed Phantom Pain, and they asked if I would answer some questions for a documentary, um, which then went out with the game, which probably isn't like a great look for a journalist also reviewing the game. In hindsight, I should probably have said no, but, you know, I was just jet-lagged and like, yeah, sure, I'll sit there and and half remember anecdotes my contribution to that documentary is not my finest hour it's me not really remembering the specifics of fighting the end <laughs> <laughs> but what would um where would our podcast meme economy be without that picture matthew of you yeah. in that documentary it's crucial you look, uh, pretty, you look pretty good in that um that video like you look uh, you're in yeah, like, I mean, yeah, because it was eight years ago i was eight <laughs> years thinner <laughs> Um, yeah, there has been a pandemic since then. There was a uh, <laughs> there's a Games Radar video of Dan Dawkins interviewing me and Matt Pellet about Phantom Pain because we'd been two of the first in the world to sit down and play it. Mm. Dan Dawkins was obviously like Mr. Metal Gear Solid and for the Games Radar. I didn't even remember them having this. They had a set that was like, or they did a regular show. It was like a little studio set up somewhere, which I have no recollection of going to at all. Hmm. But it's like me and Matt sitting on a sofa being interviewed by Dan. And like, <laughs> all the comments are like, look at these fucking nerds. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> compared to all the other, you know, that everyone else had quite glamorous looking video presenters. They were like, these fucking dweebs. <laughs> and then all the other comments are just chiming in going like, these are the only people I trust to tell me about this game oh, based on how they look. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, yeah, to, to me, this looks like this game is all they've got in a nothing else. That's... <laughs> people are like, this is exactly who you should trust. <laughs> these guys have got nothing else in their lives. Yeah. Um, I also upset Kojima by tweeting about the inclusion of, what song was it? Oh, take, man, take he sold me. the world. Oh, yeah. I think I mentioned one of the pop songs that you picked up in the game. Right. And we, we were given, like, it was one of those terrible PR activation things where they're like, for the next half hour, you can all tweet, and then, like, Kojima might retweet your tweets. Right. And I managed to tweet the one thing which pissed him off, and then had a load of people come over to me going, like, you've got to delete that tweet, you've got to delete that tweet. He doesn't want that out. He doesn't want anyone to know that that song's in the game. So, um... Yeah, I managed to annoy him from afar. That was good. That tallies with um, Ben from MinMax's uh, experience, where they said how like long Ground Zeroes was, and then they were like, "You can't say that or ever." And it's like maybe you should say what you can't say before. Right. Well, that's yeah. it. Cause they were just like tweet about what you've played, and yeah. I was like, "All right." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's this thing. It's like I don't know. They should be a bit more polite to the star of their documentary. I think, um, but that's yeah. just that's just me, Matthew. I me, thought... Matt Pellet, Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> <laughs> Do people in Together the com- at last. people in the comments go, these fucking dweebs? Um, yeah, amazing. 
Uh, yeah, so I, I do remember actually the, the Metal Gear Access thing was funny because I did hear from a PR quite early that they were bringing it to PC, but weirdly they like locked us out of all of the different preview events. And I remember you coming back from that trip and just telling me like you were like, oh yeah, this is a fucking like 10, basically. This is just, you know, an all-timer. And um, yeah. being incredibly jealous. But um, the one other trip I did this year actually was I went to DICE to see Mirror's Edge Catalyst and Star Wars Battlefront. And... That was quite a fun trip, actually. Ooh. I remember being with the PS Access lot, and they, one of their cameras hadn't been hadn't come back with them on the plane from like uh, Stockholm or wherever we were. That was like that must have been the most stressed they've ever been. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was a, it was that was quite that was quite a fun trip because Dice as well is like basically their office is like a Mirror's Edge level, and you go there and you're like, oh yeah, this kind of tracks actually that they would make this first person game in this quite you- modern architecture. Did you start climbing over all the brightly coloured bits? No, nope, because I was out of shape from eating too many white chocolate buttons, Matthew. That's um, but that's my cross to bear. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of like uh, anything else to add from this year, Matthew, um, in terms of like fun times or relevant experiences. A lot uh, less dramatic than twenty fourteen, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I guess like in hindsight, I did get to do quite a lot, which was fun. Yeah, like the Metal Gear review event. Like I played that game for a whole week, which as an editor, going to a week long review event. <laughs> It seems, uh, you know, a bit gross, but, you know, I trusted my skillful team to suck it up. Um, (laughs) That's what makes you such a great manager, basically, and it always has. Yeah, so, um, Matthew, shall we pivot to what was going on at E3 that year? Because quite a pivotal year for for the console manufacturers. So you're in, basically, the consoles launched in 2013. So at this point, you're getting into, like, the, you know, what have you actually got? Um, for this uh, this generation what is going to define this generation and it's interesting because xbox has been in basically damage control mode since the um the sort of like don matrick um sort of like xbox one announced disaster from there it's been reconstruction reconstruction uh, but here's the thing right i would argue this conference has what i think is in retrospect i'm the most excited about like now when i think about everything that was at this conference more than ff7 remake or the last guardian the thing that <laughs> that i get excited about in retrospect is the fact they did xbox one backwards compatibility and yeah. they announced it at this conference and it's the only thing they had there that really got like an absolutely killer reception people were like you know both con- both console manufacturers have taken a hard line of no we're not doing backwards compatibility it's done it, we're just doing next next console and it just it, it really like they got away with it because they both did it basically um but Ugh. it had become uh, it, xbox here turned it into a battleground it was something they could win on basically that sony didn't have to invest in um Ugh. and it's a really it's really quite nice to watch in retrospect because it's kind of surrounded by i think a fairly lukewarm lineup of xbox games they make a huge deal about halo 5 as you'd expect that kicks off the show Recore, they kind of position <sighs> as if it's like uh spider-man level or horizon level exclusive oh it was it was absolutely nothing like the the big line with that is like it's from the creators of metroid prime because you know some of the kind of retro team had left to set up whatever that studio is called armature armature yeah yeah and like they've been they've been involved in some like good ports of things but they've the idea that they can kind of recapture the Metroid Prime magic, like they couldn't recapture the Metroid Prime magic when they were on the Metroid team, you know, let alone kind of like away from it. It's just, yeah, it's a, a meaningless boast that. Yeah, Inafune, he had his name on it as well. It was oh, like. Oh, uh, God. Yeah. Oh, I haven't heard about him for a long time. 
Nah, it's like uh, there's a. I'm sure there's a, a comeback in the a comeback Mega Man uh, alike of some kind. Matthew, uh, mighty mighty number ten. I look forward Oof. to it. Um, yeah, so you had uh, you had that. Then you had Rise of the Tomb Raider, of course. Xbox made like a big bid by, I assume, chucking an absolute mountain of cash at Square Enix to get this, the sequel to a mega-selling 2013 Tomb Raider game, exclusive to Xbox One, um, did come to PC later, I think. It really was a console exclusive for a long time, or at least like yeah. a year or something. It, came, it did come to PS4 eventually. Yeah, it did. Like, I think like a year later or something. Um, yeah. I think it maybe only came to PC like six months later or something, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, so that but it was a huge deal. It was like Lara Croft is front and center in this conference. There's a really like weird trailer in this E3 conference that's got the Man of Steel music playing behind it. Fallout Four on stage here, huge deal. Um, a big thing about this e- this E3 actually is it had like an absolute all timer of a Bethesda conference. I know we discussed on the um, E3 Patreon episode we did, Matthew. Um, mm. That 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 had like Fallout Four, like grand reveal, and then like um, they revealed Dishonored Two. They had Doom there. And uh, I can't remember what else they had. Maybe they had Wolfenstein too, but it was just an absolute like cavalcade of amazing things. Um, I was at that conference. Mm. It was super cool. Um, then you have like a, a cursed looking plants versus zombie shooter, um, Forza Six, um, with a car on stage. Obviously, um, classic. No Randy Newman, of course. No Randy shame. Newman. <laughs> their, their big piece of hero art for this year was like the shots of characters' faces side on. <laughs> yeah. So it'd be like Master Chief's face in profile. Then it would be Lara Croft. Then it would be Marcus Phoenix because of the Gears of War one remaster. Uh, and then it would be a car from Forza. And the human, human, human car is always that is will always be funny to me. Just to be like, <laughs> it's the car's face. It's the bonnet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hero character. That's uh, yeah, really yeah, funny. They also had Henry Ford the Third on stage, which has big like. To collect the award, here's the son of the guy who played Huggy Bear, Simpsons Joke Energy. Um, a bit of that to it. Um, so yes, uh, <laughs> then you get to The Division, which has a um, a dramatic and very naff cover of Ordinary World by Duran Duran. I fucking love The Division, though, and I'll talk about it in Best Games 2016. I thought you were about to say I fucking love Duran Duran. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're pretty good. Um, sea of Thieves, Fable Heroes, Gears of War 4 is their one last thing, uh, and it just looks like any other Gears of War game, to be honest. Um, so uh, PlayStation, Matthew... We definitely talked about this on that E3 Patreon episode, um, but kicks off with The Last Guardian. So they show something that people thought they would never see again. Um, here it was, they, an actual game that's coming out. And uh, they had Ueda in the um, in the crowd to prove that he was alive, that this was real. Um, then they go into Horizon Zero Dawn. And I think like this is the point where the Sony dominance really solidifies. Like this, It happens this year to some extent, but I think here you're really seeing like a strategy of cool exclusives take shape and people really buying into like the idea that oh PlayStation is actually where all of the good shit lives and that has basically secured them first place in the console wars probably for the next 10 years um, they'd have to do a lot to salvage uh, to like sabotage that goodwill i think so uh. horizon's just like such a big a big deal because it's obviously guerrilla games um pivoting from the kill zone games which were um quite boring first person shooters um, to most uh. people into an open world game so a big deal with robot dinosaurs quite a good showing here hitman 2016 matthew that's here street fighter 5 no man's sky of course Dreams, Destiny, the Taken King, um, minus Dinklebot, who they took out with the uh, the expansion. Um, wise decision. Tough break. 
<laughs> Assassin's Creed Syndicate, um, Final Fantasy VII Remake, which again, a massive, massive reveal. Then there's some Shenmue 3 stuff, which um, I think at the time seemed like a massive deal that this game existed, but it was just a Kickstarter campaign. Seems yeah. a bit bogus in retrospect. Not very convincing. Yeah, um, uh, that was that that was naff. That that was like not to 60 and then 60 snort again very quickly <laughs> yeah i mean like in fairness like he they actually made it it came out and you know yeah the, pe- and the, the people who like shenmue bought it and no one else did yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um i mean yeah. short of him coming out and announcing like nfts i can't think of m- more of a after the grand reveal <laughs> then uh, after that you got psvr that's here um i think that releases the next year cod blobs 3 battlefront it's here and it ends with uncharted 4 the um the bit in the uh the the jeep going through the um the town Matthew the chase that was a fucking uh, excellent oh, an all timer E three demo yeah so a really really strong showing there from Sony but Nintendo was not something I actually looked up for this episode so I'm going to leave it to Matthew to recap what was going on with Nintendo this year oh uh, it's bleak this <laughs> is like literally well it's literally a month before Iwata dies right of course they're puppets. Which at the time you're like, this is so cute, and now you can't help but see it as, you know, this is voice work only for a reason. Right, like, right. This is obviously a very sick man at this point. Um, oh, so the whole the whole thing is like definitely tainted because of that. I mean, they were also puppets because they morph into the uh, Star Fox puppets and show off sort of Star Fox for the first time. Um, like. I, I, you know, I, I think op- opinions will definitely um, vary on this one. Mario Maker, big announcement, very cool on paper. Not, not, not entirely like my bag. You know, I'm not a big Mario Maker head. Uh, what Yoshi's Woolly World, um, and again, a kind of strand of their ultra cute kind of arts and craft platformers, which I never really thought the aesthetic of these quite counteracted the sort of simplicity of the actual kind of games underneath. Mm. Um, yeah, Star Fox was the other big one. I mean, th- 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 like an indicator of this one, a bit like my uh, Halo Five straight into Minecraft Hololens, is it's like Star Fox looking a little visually underpowered straight into here are some exclusive Nintendo Skylanders. Oh right, and That's tough. you're like, if Skylanders is like the second thing that happens, that's probably not a good sign of where this 50 minutes is going. Right. Yeah. Um. Uh, one thing I do quite like in this is not the Zelda game they announced, which is Triforce Heroes, the kind of three-player co-op 3DS game built in the um, Link Between Worlds engine. Um, but they seem to film it in the inside the Nintendo building, like in the in the Zelda team area. Right. So like, there's a shot of Anuma walking up some stairs, and there's like the floor signs. I've got like big. There's sprite art on them which is really cool and there's like a shot of a like meeting room one and it's got like the the sword from um you know the sword sprite from the original zelda on it and stuff and like there is you know that that nintendo building which everyone has seen the external shots of is such a sort of like willy wonka's chocolate factory kind of scenario Mm. that even like a two second glimpse of an of a, of a nondescript open plan office is enough to be like ooh you know the gates are opening we get to glimpse inside for this one time only um it, i bet it probably isn't even their fucking offices knowing them they probably filmed it on a set or something um but yeah <laughs> stanley I mean, kubrick filmed it matthew stanley kubrick filmed it <laughs> yes that's 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 the indicator of where nintendo at it, this e3 i was most excited by meeting room door <laughs> i have a question for you does this 
mark do you think this kind of marks the demise of the 3ds this year because it, when you look at the what came out you had a majora's mask port that was you know it was like the natural companion to the ocarina time port so it's good they did that in 3d yeah you had monster hunter 4 ultimate codename steam and then xenoblade chronicles only running on the new 3ds um yeah is it kind of over at this point is focus shifting to the switch uh... you think I don't know. Like they announced Fire Emblem Fates, which obviously after Awakenings is still exciting. Like yeah. still that's still quite buzzy. I like I wouldn't say it's totally game over. I think there's probably more interesting 3DS games this year than there are Wii U games. Mm. Oh, brutal. Well, that's that's interesting actually. I want to pivot here because you said there's no no Nintendo games in your top ten. Splatoon that happened this year. Yeah, yeah, and, and my relationship with Splatoon is more substantially on switch for sure right you know like i played a little bit but i just didn't have you know like it i don't didn't didn't have like a huge reason to or time to you know what it's like in this job Mm. the idea of like digging into splatoon and becoming a splatoon career player just seemed very very unlikely um i knew it was gonna be great i absolutely believed in it from what we saw in 2014 Mm. But I'd be lying to say, like, Splatoon 1 is, like, especially meaningful to me. Yeah. Was there any Breath of the Wild stuff at this Nintendo conference, Matthew? No, there wasn't. Fuck, that's tough. That's like, yeah. yeah. Okay, an absolute right well, Obviously, then. Xenoblade had come out earlier in the year as well. So, it's an e- there's a trailer for it, which has, like, a date prior to the E3, <laughs> which is weird. That's it's tough. like a remember this. Like, if you're having to say remember this in your E3 conference... Uh, also not a good sign. <laughs> yeah. So like the uh, it's obviously, like, hey everyone, remember the SNES? <laughs> you know, yeah. 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 Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. I suppose like that aside, I I didn't see really like loads and loads of like news items of note. The Iwata thing is like the biggest event of the year, really. I think. Um, just yeah. on paper. So obviously like a a huge a huge deal and you know a very it, well missed. Uh, you know, yeah. It, it, it was just a, what a shocker. Like. You know, you have no idea kind of how, you know, how, how he was doing on a sort of day-to-day basis, but, like, he still felt like quite a big presence. You know, he's doing a voice for a E3 conference. There was still, like, a few Awata Asks interviews being written up, and, you know, he he looked, like you know, definitely in the last couple of years, you could see, like, you know, he was changed in some way um, by a, a public illness that he had been dealing with. But, yeah, it, it I don't know, just sort of, you know... The combination of that and like leaving the Nintendo mags and all that, just as as a Nintendo fan, it, it did feel like a bit of an end of an era. I didn't feel like, oh, I'm done with Nintendo, but um, it's not really until a Switch comes back that you know comes out and Breath of the Wild is the game that it is that I kind of like sort of believe fully in them. You know, again, you know, and I imagine if, you know lots of other people were in a similar boat. Um, yeah, so the other stuff that happens this year, like of note, I guess, is that um, 2K shuts down a couple of studios, including um, 2K Australia, who worked on Borderlands, the pre-sequel. Of, but like the other notable thing that happens, of course, is that uh, Hideo Kojima is ousted from Konami oh, yeah. and um, by December has formed his own independent studio also called Kashima Productions uh, so yeah we've um, told that story uh, as in as much detail as I think is probably available in the in the world with um, Simon Parkin on this mm. on this podcast so that's an episode you can listen to and uh, yeah um, so that that's kind of it for news really Matthew um, my last question then before we get into our list is do you think this was a great year for games and um, because 
I have previously called this an absolute baller year. And investigating the list, I think that is true of the very big games. But I think there might be it might be a case of like blockbusters doing heavy lifting in a in a year that didn't have tons and tons of amazing games. Is that fair for the profile yeah, this year? Yeah, it's like it's it's probably like the defining multi-format blockbuster year. Yeah, of this generation, you know, it feels like it peaks here. A couple of yeah, like the the games at the top of my list are kind of you know there's a couple of all timers in there for me for sure there are some other big games i'm not as into and actually yeah i will get into this when we get into this i guess but um outside of that it, it, there's you know there's a few nines and tens but there's there is a little bit of drop off after that yeah i think i agree it's um it's just truly like such a massive deal for blockbusters like you say that uh that ends up being i think how you maybe remember this year and um it's funny because when we were talking before this episode me and matthew were like oh actually that our year list might be quite boring to people because this year is kind of like it's self-evident what matters from this year um do you think that's yeah. the case matthew yeah i mean maybe i've deliberately picked some like contrarian takes <laughs> or um tried to spice up the lower end of my list actually it's not spice i'd say it's genuine like there were some big games this year that i classically don't have a big relationship with and yeah. so even though people might be think they're a shoo-in it was a big old shrug from me i mean there's one particular one which is like considered one of the greatest games of all times but i have no relationship with it so it's not going in my list um, yeah it's not even in my honorable mentions it's it's going in my list even though i didn't finish it so i'm sure we'll get into that but uh yeah, yeah it's gonna be i think it's gonna be a good pod so uh <laughs> he says one hour it's gonna into be an annoying pod. pod if you like um from soft <laughs> okay matthew should we take a quick break and then we'll come back with our top 10 games of 2015 Let's do it. Welcome back to the podcast. So, the best games of 2015. Let's do it. How do we do this then? So, we count down our top 10 lists. We get, take it in turns, going from 10 to 1. And then, whoever has a game highest in their list, we'll discuss it when we get to them. So, say that someone has a game at number 10, and then the other person has it at number 2. We'll discuss it when we get to number 2 in the other person's list. So, pretty straightforward. Uh, borrowed from the old Chet and John's Reassuringly Finite Gaming playlist. I feel compelled to point that out, because uh, that was a key podcast text for me. Um, mm. But Matthew, this is going to be fun, I think. So I've got a bunch of honourable mentions, I'll say, for the end, too. I'm guessing you have a few of those, too. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, who, who, who should go first, you or me? You kick, you kick it off for once. Okay, sure. So my number 10 is a slightly weird one, because this game originally released in 2014. But this was the year it came to PC, and it was the year I discovered it. So, this game is Inkle's 80 Days, Matthew. So, ah, yes. Is this on your list? Uh, it isn't. And I know... Did we talk about this in the last episode? I don't think we did. I don't think we did, and I think that's why I made a point of putting it on this list. I yeah. think that's what happened. So, okay. 
Yeah, basically, like, um, basically takes the around the world in 80 days as a source text and builds this, like, steampunk world around that story. And the premise of the game is basically you have to get around the world in 80 days in order to um, fulfill um, some uh, some bets that um, uh, Phileas Fogg has made. Um, I think I'm remembering that rightly, Matthew. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Should have made more more notes, really. Yeah, basically, it's loosely based on the original, um, yeah, on the original Jules Verne uh, novel, and uh, yeah, Phileas Fogg. Based on the original cartoon. (laughs) Based on the Steve Coogan film with uh, Jackie Chan. Um, Yeah, so it's um, it's eighteen seventy two, and then Phileas Fogg has placed a wager, and it basically has to get around the world in eighty days or less. And you basically play as. Oh god, they're going to really fucking struggle here. Pass part two, Matthew. Yeah. I, yeah, okay, bit out of my depth there. Um, but you, that's basically you are in control of that character. As it's basically like his valet, um, essentially making all the decisions that get you around the world. So deciding where to go next, that sort of thing, and interacting with the this beautiful, beautiful world map via this um, via basically like a uh, sort of uh, graphic adventure style, picking um, multiple choice dialogue options and having the kind of cause and effect that sort of thing um there is an absolutely uh, incredible amount of text buried away in this game possibilities to to find and um, as you make your journey around the world the first time i played it i thought it was impossible to actually do the um to actually get around the world in 80 days that seemed impossible um just based on like uh like the weird places i ended up and that Mm. seemed like the fastest route and then suddenly i was stuck in a place for like two days and i was like screaming at my um <laughs> at my uh my monitor and then um you realize as you play it more and more that there are like stiff different shortcuts you can take but really the game's magic is about uncovering all of the little bits of text written by uh john ingold and uh, meg giant so basically yes the writing really brings this game to life this is my first encounter with Inkle's games and um apparently it's uh, 70 750,000 words of text in this game and it does feel like wildly ambitious for what it is and it's maybe the best mobile game i've ever played uh, i absolutely adore it Ooh. and like I, i've enjoyed inkle's other stuff but this one really just clicked with me in a very specific way because i think it promotes the idea that the it it really is about the journey and not the destination and so your character yeah. ends up your, your character ends up kind of ruminating on the journey like even if the bet is lost like at least we had some truly amazing experiences getting there and i don't yeah. know i don't know if any other game has captured that very specific feeling that of, of like travel in that way um of going to mm. new places going to wondrous places and just using tiny bits of art to bring those places to life but you know mm. just but 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 just putting um so much magic in those words so matthew i'm guessing you really like this one too yeah though it did take me a while to kind of click with it because i think if you go in thinking on sort of game terms you know you're trying to um like maximize your chances of getting around the world and you 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 can overthink things like you have a sort of inventory system there's a lot of objects which you're like well how is this ever going to help me and then lo and behold on one of the infinite paths you may meet someone who that particular object will unlock a particular event and actually the thing i had to kind of get over was the idea of like you know just go along for the journey and see where the story takes you and enjoy it that way rather than trying to like like win it per se Mm. um and that way i i just think that's what the game is and i think that's exactly what you were saying you know it is about the journey and it's not necessarily about the race to the destination it's it's about seeing what happens and letting the game surprise you and you're not trying to like beat it it's not out to get you you know it's going to give you a good ride basically wherever you go um yeah it's really good 
Yeah, it's got a lot of like crossover appeal as well with I think like people who don't necessarily engage with games and aren't used to seeing this kind of subject matter in games. So weirdly, one sort of like uh, borderline meet cute I had was I was next to someone who was reading Around the World in 80 Days on a train while I was playing this. And then she started oh. asking me about the game. And then we talked for about 10 minutes. And then she was like, I have to get off the train now. And she was at a stop. And I was like, no! <laughs> it was oh going, that's the only time that's ever happened. I've been playing a video game and a girl's gone. That's, ooh, what's this? That sounds like an event that could happen at a <laughs> mode in 80 days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I should document it in my own um, interactive adventure, Matthew. Uh, but yeah. Where you just have to get a train from Bath to Paddington. <laughs> and then you meet all the people at the five stations along the way. Yeah, you have to do it in 80 days because that's how fucking bad the train line is these days. <laughs> um, <laughs> fucking good luck with that. Yeah, absolutely. Ding dong. Okay, what's your number 10, Matthew? Uh, my number 10, uh, also a bit of an odd one, but something that really stuck with me, uh, The Magic Circle. Oh, yeah, of course, this game, yeah. Yeah, this is by Question, who are uh, a group of people who I think they were they were ex-rational, yeah, they were Bioshock 2 team. They were both on Bioshock 1, and then they formed the basis of the studio that became 2K Marin to make Bioshock 2. Two, yes. Which is kind of interesting context for this game. You are playing a QA tester exploring an unfinished game and you're basically trying to help ship it or at least polish it up to the point where the level is kind of finished. It's all broken, full of always like busted sort of elements. Um and while you're walking around this kind of broken world trying to kind of heal it, you are also witnessing a drama play out between the kind of higher level creatives on the game. Uh, there's this sort of auteur creator figure called Ishmael, Ishmael Gilder, who is kind of heading it up and whose sort of ego and sort of endless, sort of, you know, change, changing of opinion is led to this kind of like absurd feature creep. So as you play this game, you realise that it started as a a sci-fi game and has warped into a fantasy game so there's this like almost like sub layer of sci-fi you start discovering kind of within the build which you know i think this person is a proxy for a for, for like a kind of character in the games industry rather than say specifically this bioshock team may be thinking about ken levine but it is that kind of figure. It's the sort of the genius who people love and join the team because they have such admiration for the admiration for their work and the kind of conflict that can kind of arise between sort of idolizing someone and actually having to kind of like work with them. Um, so that's just all really interesting. It's got this quirky little like mechanical hook where as a QA tester, you can kind of go in and change the characteristics of items in the world by kind of taking the characteristics from one item and putting it into another so like if there's like a friendly whatever mushroom you can take the friendly characteristic give it to an enemy and that enemy won't attack you'll be on your side and so you have to kind of like rewrite the code of all these assets to get them to help you to fix the game um while also dealing with this kind of big drama unfolding um like i don't think there was like masses of this isn't like a critically acclaimed game or anything but i i do think the mechanical hook's interesting i actually think the discussion of game development which at the time i think some people dismissed as being like a little bit inside baseball a little bit like up its own ass actually maybe like lands a bit better now mm. because even in these 8 years i think we've had a lot more exposure to um, 
like how games are made through things like the Double Fine documentary or just like you know more investigative journalism and actually some of the stuff this game's talking about and dealing with maybe like outsiders are in a better position to maybe appreciate it so you know i'd be interested to see how this landed if it was released now as opposed to uh, 2015 um also just has like one of the all-timer funny funniest endings of a video game um where you have you get the choice to sort of hijack uh, an E3 demo from like within the game and the anticipation of fucking up this demo and like ruining this asshole's career if you choose to is so delicious and it just gen- it, it's one of the hardest times I've ever laughed at a game I didn't find the rest of the game like hilarious but this one joke as like this perfect payoff to this little quest you'd been on I thought was just so good um, and yeah it's, it's, it's really really stuck with me yeah I think like what is sort of special about this game is like the the amalgamation of like different game references in there or like weird chunks of you know ideas that they've that have been thrown together in the midst of this game development yeah i mean that like you know if you've played like dark forces or the original system shock you recognize the sci-fi bit that you mentioned yeah you know, like you know and then and then like some of the creatures are just so odd and then they're against well, they're this like kind unfinished of like, assets and things like that. Yeah, and they're like it's like there's like a big like black and white aesthetic to this game, isn't there as well? And like and then yeah. random bits of color sort of like poking out from that. Um that combined with like I think like you say, like that subject becoming more relevant. And then um also it having like the programming thing being like a borderline immersive sim element, you know, them tapping yeah. into that part of their expertise. And I think that's like a really cool combination. Um mm. like you say, it's like basically i'm sure it's always in steam sales this but i think they did see it as like a a niche game because when they were making their next game the blackout club they that was very much more that was much more positioned as you know there's like more people working on it it was like i think um uh trey parker's one of the um investors in the blackout club i believe and like it was like a much bigger project this seemed like their one for them kind of game um right and I really like that you've highlighted it here. I never finished it, Matthew, which is otherwise it probably would have made this list. I only ever played a demo up until, right. uh, like, I think, like, about halfway through it, basically. But um, yeah. I, bet this, I bet this works great on Steam Deck because you could just play it with a pad. Um, yeah, they released a console version as well uh, a oh, bit cool. later. So it's you can play it on, on a lot of things. But, yeah, it's it's really good. They're interesting team. I didn't know that about Trey Parker. It probably explains why they're making a South Park game. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think uh, they're close which ties Which I, I can't, I mean... What the hell is that going to be? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know those, um, you know those. They have a collaboration going back to the Stick of Truth because um, Jordan Thomas worked on that game in like a consulting capacity. Oh, I didn't even realize that was a thing. There yeah. we go. So that's like their kind of like history there. He's a super interesting guy, Jordan. I've spoken to him a few times. The closest I made to like a proper like <laughs> good Ooh, good first name pal. terms, eh? Uh, you know, almost. I don't know. I've sort of I like... admire the work of Mister Thomas. <laughs> Let's just move on, shall we? Um, okay, my next game. I really, I don't think this would make your list, but I really, really loved it at the time, and I've picked Until Dawn at number nine, Matthew. Oh, I almost picked it. I really love this game, and I was not expecting to love it. And I think it's it's funny when you you look at this year. You know, it, it wasn't last year with the Order eighteen eighty six or whatever. That might have come out this year. Actually, I can't remember. But either way, the PlayStation, the hype for PS four was always there from the start. But this is the year it starts to crystallize a bit. You have a major game that I'm sure will come up, but also you had this game that was 
announced years earlier as like a PlayStation Move PS3 thing and then kind of vanished for a while and mm. then re-emerged as this, you know, it's like a basically like a a kind of like a bunch of teenagers go on a trip to like a spooky kind of like mountain lodge um yeah. uh, sort of adventure but the whole thing plays out in the the vein of a you know a sort of like branching quantic dream game essentially where decisions can lead to like fatal consequences all of the different uh, characters are played by no most of them are played by notable actors so um that guy who's in agents of shield rami malik is in this game and uh, hayden panettiere is in this game who <laughs> she obviously has quite a big horror um sort of like uh, lineage because she's been in the screen films and stuff but mm. i always got the sense that that all that stuff was motion captured years earlier but this was finally the year they got it out matthew and i think that i don't think sony thought this was going to be a hit but it really, really was. It really kind of caught fire. And it caught fire, I think, because you got to see that um, that Quantic Dream formula without the kind of, like, the baggage of, like, the the Quantic Dream games and, like, the the discussion right. around those. But you got to, And you got to see it in this really fun, schlocky horror movie context where, yeah. you know, like, there were, some of the consequences seemed a little bit unfair. Like, you you know, like, hit the wrong button at the wrong time and someone slips and dies or whatever. That could definitely happen in this game. Um, but you also weren't so fiercely invested in the characters that you you really minded when this horror game picked one of them well, off because yeah. it kind of it kind of felt right. And some of yeah, the decisions, because you know, it has the horror trope of like there's eight people, and if you kill five of them, the story will continue because you know that's how horror films work. So it's it's a much better genre fit for this kind of game than like anything Quantic Dreams done, I think. Yeah, and so like the the. The, that kind of match was perfect and then like these actors were really committed to it i think and that really kind of brings it to life the writing's mm. good there's like a, a spooky narrator is it peter stormare the narrator of this matthew i think it is um oh i get a little confused because they've had this sort of narrator figure in in like the quarry and also that the dark pictures games yeah. so they begin to blur together a little bit i believe i believe it's peter stormare okay. in this yeah it is it is i'll just check that um so yeah it's it really interesting in that respect and like it means that because they kind of anticipate that some of the characters will die some of the ways they can die are super fun and like and super exaggerated to kind of match the setting and yeah. i just really liked it combined with you know this is super massive's like kind of breakout game i guess like this set the formula for what they would do after this but like it was just so fresh and exciting in the moment such a fun game to share with someone and I just yeah. think it's really stood the test of time. What do you think, Matthew? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm quite down on the sort of branch. I say that I've, I might have another one in my list. Yeah, yeah. I was I was really pleasantly surprised by this. I remember playing this over uh, August bank holiday weekend. I think is when it came out. Um, with I was playing it, but like my brothers and sisters were sitting on the sofa in the same room. And everyone was weighing into it. And actually, by the end of the weekend, which is about how long it takes to play, mm. everyone was like really invested in it and going, "Go down there, do it here." It's it's a really great co-op game. Like even, I think since this one, they've tried to do more like co-op modes where like everyone can control one of the eight characters or whatever. But I think it works with like one person on the pad and everyone just like weighing in and seeing what happens. Yeah, um, I think I agree. Interestingly, with that. and I hope it's not like too inside baseball to to, to say this, but um. Oh, uh, this year I was on was the year I was on the BAFTA panel for best British game. Right, and in the room there was so much love for this because it was of all the games on the list, it was so accessible. Like it was clearly the one that some judges. It was clearly the only game they could technically play hmm. because 
they were like, I hated this game, you know, because it had a mouse and keyboard setup. But they loved this game just because you press, you know, if you can press X, you can play until dawn. And it it was quite an eye opener of like, wow, like even, you know, people I quite respect in this industry, <laughs> um, like really rate this because for, for this reason. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I can sort of see that. Um, yeah, yeah. So it, 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 I think like it being on PS4 just meant, and it being a PS4 exclusive is probably the reason it got all the attention it did get. To yeah. be honest, like it might have been left otherwise. Um, it sounded like the qu- it sounded like the quarry was about as good as this, Matthew. You played that, didn't you? Yeah, I, I did like it. I think where the quarry isn't quite as good, and one of the one of the big strengths of Until Dawn is I think it like shifts draw, draw, genres like within horror throughout. Like, it starts off, you think it's going to be a slasher thing, and it actually goes down quite a lot of avenues, and what it eventually lands on, it doesn't land on until right at the end, and you probably couldn't guess that's where it's going. Right. You know, like there's some, like, almost, like, weird J-horror beats in this. There's, like, serial killer sort of slasher stuff. There's some stuff in a sort of insane asylum. It's all, you know, it's it's, it's quite schlocky but fun, where the, the quarry is kind of like, oh, I am this thing from start to finish yeah um and so it's just a little less surprising as a result um i wonder why sony didn't partner up with supermassive like well, on more first party exclusives yeah because it seems like the approach would be to like make one of these that's over like four years or something and then it's it's as refined as this and it's like you know it's got massive actors in it and stuff like that yeah. and it's you know like i guess like you know the the dark pictures thing is is a thing they own and a thing they make and it's like it's built on the same bones yeah. as this they're, they're not as good the dark pictures well it seems like there's um but like, i'm glad they exist because oh yeah but I, I just wish they were like if each one of those was as good as until dawn that would be a really like special thing to like every couple of years i'm going to get one of these rad things hmm. but they're a little bit they're a little bit six out of ten when you want them to be like high seven out of ten, you know. Well, I suppose like the other thing that this one had in its favour is it was you'd never seen this before. Like it's you know it's it's tough to like capture the same lightning in a bottle of like you know yeah just ha- this this just seems so unexpected to me because I didn't play yeah, it to, I didn't yeah. play it to the subsequent year, but when I was encouraged to, I just couldn't believe how good it was. So I was just like, yeah. wow, this awesome. And like I say, made by a British studio, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, did it win that BAFTA in the end? Uh, no. Interesting. Okay. Uh, yeah, another game on our list. One. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Actually, yes. Um, so, what's your number nine, Matthew? Uh, my number nine is The Room Three. Oh, interesting. Not on my list. And I've talked about The Room before on the podcast. This is uh, Fireproof Games' uh, sort of puzzle box game on iOS. Um, in my head, there was they they hit this sort of cadence where there was like one of these a year i think there was a two-year gap between two and three because it got a bit more ambitious but i had a, a routine of all they they'd sort of come out just before christmas and i used to play these at the christmas holidays on a, on an ipad at my at my um folks place down in devon and i used to yeah i just I, I i really looked forward to there being another room game at christmas the room three i think is 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 one of the best ones you know you're still interacting with these kind of like ornate structures that you kind of like open little hatches and pull little switches and sort of manipulate in this very tactile way using a touch screen um but this one sort of embeds them in like larger rooms and then the larger rooms are part of a house and you can move between the rooms so there's kind of like a broader kind of like game-wide puzzle between the rooms and then the further you drill into them like the more and more kind of hidden hidden crannies they have and it also introduces a mechanic where you can like um 
look into like cracks and keyholes and small openings within the structures to sort of like zoom inside them and then there's almost whole rooms inside some of the structures so it's just like everything i like about the room but much more of it yeah so i've always like um had a curiosity about this series seeing it on the switch for sale and stuff like that that vr one looks really tasty matthew i keep looking that up on um oculus mm. quest um yeah like it this seems like this was um a series that do you like critics ever like truly love this as much as i mean you know they were always lauded definitely in sort of like mobile gaming sites and they'd win awards and they'd be like you know picked for apple game of the year on the apple awards that they do on their store and things like that like they 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 were you know yeah and and like when they ported them to pc and i think they've moved them on to switch as well you know people have recognized them as as great things but yeah i i don't know if they've ever had like the like the the noisy critical acclaim but they're about i you know they that it is my favorite ios series you know it's i don't i just think they're they're so beautifully done that there, there hasn't been one um since the vr one i don't think unless i've missed one um so i hope they do make more of it because it's just you know lovely to click open weird little cupboards and then they turn into other structures and um yeah did you see the hellraiser remake recently no the one with jamie clayton yeah like that has a like a whatever the thing whatever the nasty thing is that kind of like summons the cenobites has big room energy it's like (laughs) this mechanical box that you have to kind of twist to sort of transform it into different shapes and like the different shape it becomes sort of changes the kind of fucked up prize that you're going to get from the, the baddies or whatever. Um, That's cool. But it, if there was ever going to be a, a series tie-in or crossover, uh, the room—I uh, guess the room actually has a bit of uh, Clark Barker kind of energy to it anyway. But um, yeah, they should get on that. Or a glass onion, of course, Matthew. Uh, that was. Or, the... Yeah, or, yeah, a much less sinister thing. Um, oh yeah, that would be great. Yeah, oh, man. that Why feels like that? you could just have Daniel Craig doing that ridiculous accent, giving you clues. Uh, In the background. Would, yeah, that might work quite well. Um, that is like a really good intro to that film, actually. that was quite I was quite impressed by that. And then I think everyone was comparing it to The Room when um, that film dropped. Um, mm. Although I don't know if the tone of that film's changed now, because it's got a big Gen- Jeremy Renner gag in there, and the guy almost died. Like, are we allowed to laugh at Jeremy Renner still? Yeah, well, it, but, yeah but the gag <laughs> in the film isn't like... I hope this guy gets churned up by a machine. <laughs> well, no, you know, it's well, no, that's true, but it is still at, at his expense. Firmly, that gag, I would say. Oh, um, I don't know. I'd say he, I'd say that that gag is like, look, he's cool, like he's he's loved, you know, he's cool enough to get a kind of little nod in this film. I right? assumed that was a real product based on my perception of Je- who Jeremy Renner is. Like that, right. that's how I felt about that gag. But anyway, oh, unless it, yeah, maybe it's saying Jeremy Renner is like of this set of kind of assholes <laughs> well yeah yeah exactly like either way yeah. Yeah. Uh, glad that he's he seems to be doing okay yeah he does yes um so yes the room um i bet <laughs> they've made absolutely mint from this being on switch because you do always see in like the sales charts and stuff yeah uh, always meant to play these but the vr one weirdly sounds more appealing to me than um the non-vr ones at this point matthew but uh yeah i don't Ooh. know do you have like a ranking for that series in your head uh Probably like three, two, one, four. Okay, interesting. All right, good. But I've not replayed them in a long time. But I remember three being a good one. Thus, it's inclusion on the list. Fair enough. So we're on my number eight, right? Yeah. My number eight is Mad Max. Is this on your oh. list? 
It isn't on my list. I did boot it up, though, because I saw you tweeting or mentioning it. I thought, oh, maybe I should give this another go and see if I, like, respond in a in a noticeable way. And um, anyway, you tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, so Avalanche made a game based on Mad Max. It adapts the universe of the films, even if it's not a direct adaptation of the films themselves. So you play as a, a sort of a generic, a non-Mel Gibson or Tom Hardy uh mad max um you are your car has been i think taken or destroyed or something so you basically have to start from scratch with a new car there's this um uh nice uh, man who's with you and he's going to help you build your car and then you basically go you're going across this um across the mad max desert landscapes trying to like oust uh scrotus i think his name is basically like this warlord who controls the wastelands Basically, you're doing all the things you do in an open world game, but they are themed around ousting this warlord. And that involves um, pulling down these scarecrow things, which I guess are like, you know, propaganda. Um, and But the main the main kind of like thing that you end up doing is going into these fortresses where like oil, the oil refineries and things like that and dismantling them. They are essentially settlements that you unpick for um, scrap, which you can use to upgrade uh, both Max and his car. And um, that involves uh, getting into all these like melee combat scenarios, which is basically a slightly anemic version of the Batman Arkham combat. Um, not nearly as good, but the um, the car combat in this game is really good and offers a great power curve. You go from having this rusty naff thing to basically this like war machine over 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 a period of time you become like a lot faster a lot deadlier you start taking on convoys um smashing cars up and it really kind of like i guess guess giving you a superficial um feeling of like what it was like to watch fury road which came out this year mm. um i think it, it the reason i put it on my list i think this is one of the best examples of the generic elements of an open world game being bent perfectly around a license um i think Mm. it's i think it's really committed to how it how it adapts um adapts those elements like the the most of the level design in this game does seem to go into like those fortresses and how you how you take them out and the variety of how they're designed and these scrappy thrown together things it's like um there's a, a a war crier in each of these um these settlements that's basically like a dude strapped with explosives who will scream um to get like um everyone to come and attack you basically like a security system and every one of them you can like basically like hit a winch and then they'll just fall and explode to their deaths and it's just so violent and fun and over the top even the upgrades are given to you by this kind of like weird sort of like desert uh, uh, swami figure just this really strange dude who talks to you about your past and then <laughs> and then like you just upgrade um a few points to to improve max's um sort of stats and then kind of go off again i think like just really captures the the feeling of being this road warrior in this big empty landscape but not but not being boring at the same time it's kind of miraculous to have a game mm. that's just a desert with some you know um sort of like interesting horizon lines and then like loads of smoke coming out of these different settlements and then yeah. just some cars driving around that's all this game is but it, it still works incredibly well i played 12 hours of it this weekend matthew and had a great fucking time okay the one of the games i've not finished on this list but mm. i think it needs a mention as like this is way better than it should have been thoughts yeah i, I think there's been like a reassessment as well yeah like definitely cooler at the time i think the thing you say about like 
it being such a good fit for this kind of open world design is is absolutely spot on i think that is why this game works it's you know this is a, a world and culture of zipping across a huge expanse and going to dots where interesting things are and that's where you can survive and that's where life goes on in in this particular world so the idea of clearing it out and like stripping stripping the desert of everything it has like narratively it's super coherent yeah i i've just never got very far with it you know like it's it's uh i think one that you can kind of chip away at and pick up again and dip into your save again a few years on and still have a pretty good time yeah absolutely and i think like it's I think I felt like when I first played it, I was like, oh, I've got the measure of this. And I think I kind of did. But then going back to it, I underestimated just how compelling that loop is in this particular setting and how Mm. the bits of desert do actually subtly change, like the types of, um, you know, sort of like old world objects you find there or even like the way that they're lit or like the color of the sand, that sort of thing. Mm. Or the like, you know, how hard the enemies are that sort of stuff it it does have like a a meaningful power curve to it and that power curve accelerates quite quickly you are you do go from having this proper piece of shit car to something that's really zippy and like quite useful and so there's like some just some really satisfying things you can do with the car like using your harpoon to like pull down towers that have like sniper dudes in them them just falling to their deaths that sort of stuff or using it to um rip using your like harpoon to rip a guy out of a car while he's driving it and pull off the wheel of a vehicle that sort of stuff like where the the hand-to-hand combat lacks that granular excitement factor it just feels like a kind of copy and paste in a lot of ways but not as good mm. the car combat feels completely original and and, and it kind of like uses the different just causey elements that avalanche was synonymous with in in a very compelling fashion so yeah i, I think you're right it's been reappraised but I think in like capturing the story of 2015, Matthew, even though it's a game I played a lot later, wanted to put it in here. Plus, it's always two ninety nine in um, Xbox sales, so well, well worth it. It's like a, I think it's a rite of passage for a new Xbox Series XS owner to just buy this and have it in their library, personally. But uh, yeah. yeah, what's your number eight, Matthew? Uh, my number eight is Dying Light. Oh, not on my list. Um, which uh, you know, again, is a game which really grew on me over time. Like dismissed it at the time. You know, there were there were just much bigger, more exciting things happening. And um, you know, I think I was a little bit sniffy about this one when it first came out. I found it quite rough around the edges. But it's actually the kind of roughness to it that I've kind of grown to appreciate in a way. Um, this is, uh, and I think probably more so in light of Dying Light Two, which sanded off so many of those rough edges and actually what it left was very very inert um and made me appreciate this all the more um what i like about it is it's obviously the uh techlands uh follow-up to the dreadful dead island one set in an open world city uh which you move around with parkour really compelling parkour just clambering around is very interesting getting from a to b is just you know the fact that you actually have to work and plan out a route and guess the jumps you're going to make because if you fail them there's a lot of fucking zombies in the streets below that just instantly makes the moment to moment action of this game very very compelling to me um i do like the nature of the zombie threat in this and it's one of the big problems of the sequel is the way that they kind of change zombie behavior between day and night cycles here like the city's always got zombies you can like never clear it out you can never really win you know it isn't like congrats you took back this region it's now safe and life will return you know it's just a constant 
whenever you are outside of a couple of safe zones, um, there will always be a kind of general pressure and even basic zombies in enough numbers can fuck you up and, you know, the most competent character can still fail and for it to kind of like maintain that baseline kind of stress and tension I think is is really impressive. It has a really cool leveling system where you like level through doing. I don't really know what we call that, but you know, like the sort of I guess the Skyrim mm. thing as well of like the more jumping you do, the better you get at jumping, and so the character that you naturally behave at is what you begin to excel at, and so that's that's always good. I am just a big fan of that, and would like all leveling to be that. You can also just cheese it as well, just by like jumping up and down loads. <laughs> um, <laughs> like a fucking maniac well it has this thing where at night these like really scary zombies called volatiles come out who are like hunt you and they're really really fast and they're really really dangerous a lot of players uh, outside of a few sort of obligatory story missions where you have to do them at night um will probably sleep the night away and just play this game constantly in the daylight which is largely what i did originally but um at night all your XP gain is much more uh, amplified because of the greater threat. So if you're being chased by one of those things, they can, you know, you'll be you'll be developing those skills a lot faster at night. So it does kind of tease you tease you into that space as well, which is interesting. Um, and it has just a, yeah a really nice power curve between that 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 leveling by doing, but also uh, it introduces like a grappling hook, which completely changes your relationship with the city. Really empowers you in a way that you weren't before, but it holds it back until probably about halfway into the game. Certainly, you know, the, you, have to, you have to prove yourself a master of the basic parkour, and I really liked that kind of self-control as well. So, yeah, it's just a, a, a weird sort of, you know, narratively nothing special, but the, the, the basic loop of clambering around a city to escape this constant zombie threat, I think this is... Um, like yeah just a, a a game i've i've i'm like more and more impressed with over time yeah i think that what was impressive about this was they that like dead island like you say was like his big success but i felt like it was just riding that hype that came from that one trailer um, oh it was awful <laughs> well some people liked it some people didn't but then i think that this was like putting the parkour front and center of this was just such a good idea um, the setting really felt quite vivid and specific. Uh, like you say, the story is not that interesting, but the the setting did feel a little bit different. As a, it felt like a place that hadn't been in the video games as it's much. Sort of, it's sort of tur- isn't it? Sort of in Turkey. I feel like it certainly like that part of the world. It feels like it's got yeah some of the like you know like the way it's lit and like the building types and stuff like that. It's sort of just as a kind of urban environment that's been abandoned. I feel like it hadn't explored that particular space before. Um, mm. And I think it did make the zombies exciting. The day-night cycle thing was a great idea. Um, I never like properly persisted with this enough to see the end of it, but was really impressed by it. They also did they support this like over years with loads of new yeah, stuff as well. Yeah, it's kind of the model that um, CD Projekt Red did with The Witcher, where there were quite a lot of free updates, and then there was paid expansions. The expansion, uh, the following adds is like big countryside area outside mm. and it's kind of more traditional open world with like buggies and vehicles and stuff which considering you play it all in co-op it's um it's pretty fun like you know it, it the through line of this game and its development is is like weirdly similar to the witcher and the witcher 3 and how they kind of got their audience on board and kind of developed kind of goodwill with them and everything so it's um yeah yeah I've, I've just 
like I say, like the story around it, and it, 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 this pick is probably influenced by the fact that I did a lot of Dying Light 2 coverage and had to go back and like revisit the game and kind of like, that's really when I sort of fell in love with it, you know, kind of playing it sort of since. So probably, you know, not not the version at launch, but the slightly more kind of polished, updated version that, that it now is, um, is is what really kind of got me. Yeah, I think it like properly grew over time as a phenomenon as well. And then like it, suddenly I think they were just like, oh yeah, we sold like 8 million copies of this. And I was like, what? Yeah. Where did that come from? Um, yeah. But yeah, they just stuck at it and the audience who wanted it, that wanted something very specific, this game gave it to them. So two, yeah. Two was a real bust. That's sort of, just that was no one of the all time. They, misunder- they misunderstood, I think, what made what made this one special. It was an all-time great like conference demo too, wasn't it? It was like one of those yeah. on paper. It's like wow, like the idea that the whole world changes based on who you let control it and stuff like that. Um, That's the end. The conference demo. The thing they showed was the, is the last level of the game. Oh, interesting. That's tough. Isn't that weird? What a weird thing that they did. Probably because they showed a vertical slice and then built the game around it, and then like, and yeah. then that, and then that ended up being like the. You the get way to it, you're like, oh, cool, it's this from that demo, and then you're like, wait. That's the end. What? <laughs> They've like doing the same thing again, though, right? Where they're adding more and more stuff to it. Is that right? I think they have. Uh, yeah, I haven't. Again, I haven't really gone back to it. Like, I kind of, you know, I I played it a lot for review and 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 felt like I exhausted what it was. They, yeah, they have been adding stuff. I just, I don't know. Like the core idea of it, I'm just not interested in being in that world and the way the zombies behave. Just, yeah, just doesn't doesn't interest me compared to the first game. So. Like it doesn't matter what stuff they put in that world. I think it's fundamentally not as good. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, okay, sorry, Dying Light. <laughs> uh, okay, so next up then, uh, my number seven, Matthew, is Bloodborne. Not on your list, of course. So no. didn't finish this one, so maybe this is controversial to put here. But I swear I must have played this for like sixty to eighty hours, getting nowhere. Oh wow. Oh, okay. Well, so you can put it in then. Yeah, well, I got like almost, like I said, I got almost nowhere. I killed the Bloodstaff Beast. I killed Father Gascoigne. I killed um, that woman who turns into a dog that screams in a human voice. What is she called? Vicar Amelia? Yeah, beat her. Um, and then, like, I just found the game obscenely hard from there. Um, just, like, unreasonably difficult. And I was always struggling with it. Um, and I, I did mean to, like, properly go back to it. But still, it's like. The amount that I played of it, the weird magic of this particular sort of like, I guess, Victorian London infused world, um, this spooky, weird, feels like you're in a very cursed version of like ye olde Britain, um, right down to like the NPC voices, uh, the strange characters you'd meet, um, the weird like um, cackling you'd hear in houses and stuff, the idea of like something going seriously wrong in a civilized a civilized place um just really a really just i think like no offense to dark souls because i know people really love that world but i think this is like a massive step up in terms of how that world is vividly depicted and how compelling setting is in a from game um when i played dark souls it kind of just felt like a load of castles to me (laughs) i just i just wasn't wasn't quite tuning into it i'm afraid bloodborne though i was just like blown away by the the imagination of that setting um some of the strange enemies you'd fight that sort of thing um yeah like i say didn't finish it but still represents a massive part of what i was doing in 2015 and i think when you look at the course of what happens to playstation 4 this is the true start of that killer run um that like gets that wins them the generation basically this also 
is the game i would say matthew maybe you agree with this that solidifies from as the developer it's not just dark souls or demon souls it's like oh every game they make now is going to be like this it's going to be a huge deal um it feels like that happens here but yeah i think when it comes to the recent history of games consoles this is the game that starts you know everything that leads to like i guess until dawn but then through the next year you get you know when you get to like horizon and spider-man yeah. god of war that all that begins here the last guardian so yeah. yeah um important will i finish it ever god i would like to say so but every time i think about it a new from game comes along and i feel like i should play that one instead for like 20 hours and abandon it matthew yeah um, do you ever give this a go yeah yeah i've tried several times um i can't get past uh father gascoigne um i get there i bounce off it I, it only takes bouncing off a boss like three or four times for me to be like fuck this i've got better things to be doing i mean i have i've heard rich stanton talk about this game to me at the pub for longer than it would take me to play this game <laughs> uh so like i feel like i could do a passable impression of someone who is really into bloodborne but i respect our listeners too much to do that <laughs> um same relationship i have with with most from stuff stuff it just you know, I play it until it frustrates me too much. Um, I'm not naturally like wowed or dazzled by um, their kind of storytelling, which hooks people. It, whatever the hook is that can get people over that that frustration, um, I I haven't found it in a lot of their games. I, you know, I, I don't really get it. I guess Elden Ring. I've played more than the others. Uh, Elden Ring. I'm not stuck on. I'm just lost. Um, <laughs> I just don't know. Like like where i'm meant to be going like everything seems nasty in every direction so <laughs> yeah um, i'm just i'm just like basically overwhelmed by volume of stuff to do in Elden ring that's kind of like yeah that's my stance of that uh and yeah. uh yeah so i uh, you know i wish i wish i could talk more elegantly about this game you know it's one of the you know and this developer more generally obviously one of the the key if not the key player of of the last decade it's yeah. embarrassing to you know call these other games journalists and, and, and not have a stance on this but um yeah know, i just can't whatever can, can i once again <laughs> trot out matthew my reasoning of why i think this is inferior to sekiro which is to say this game has uh some kind of counter system or like parry system where you basically have to pick a there's like a random time in an enemy attack animation where you can fire your gun and when you do you will basically like stop the enemy in their tracks and be able to perform a powerful attack and no human using their brain could ever work out when that is i don't think based on like when i did look up when these parry times were and managing to like very like almost never nail it essentially people might fiercely disagree with that having played the game for 400 hours or whatever but that's how i felt about it yeah um like yeah. I think what they should do is they should look at Batman and you know when the enemies are attack you there's like blue lightning bolts around their heads. Yeah. That's what they should do in this because that's just better that's just a better combat system, isn't it? <laughs> the other thing is that like because it's the this all got the RPG stuff in it. It's like there was one boss I was really struggling with and I was looking up and it was like, Oh yeah, you gotta put your anti poison clothes on for this one. And I was like, fuck that. Like that's not I know like it's <laughs> an RPG as part of the DNA here, but I was just there thinking changing fucking outfits for every single boss like can't i just can't i just beat the boss based on skill alone like it's no you know yeah that's that's like looking up how to how to beat father gascoigne everyone's like oh there's a there's a trick to make this really easy um you get this like music box and you give it to someone uh you play this music box 
and you have to go through this great chain of events to get this music box in the first place and if you play it it all it means is the same fight but for like two seconds father gascoigne kind of reflects nostalgically on the music and you're like oh fantastic <laughs> i've bought myself two seconds this is awesome thank you so much like even the cheese i'm still absolutely <laughs> fucked in this game the one thing i will say the, the only time in this game i suppose like i got the true i felt the true force of that from style of storytelling it was with father gascoigne because i don't know if you remember matthew there is like a, a, do- a house you go to where you can like interact with the door and there's like a little boy there who's like i think he says something like my dad's like left and i don't know when he's coming back and then it turns out his dad was father gascoigne who you've killed and that was like i thought that was that worked quite well as a a bit of storytelling um in this world of this how cruel and awful this world is big ape um trying to get a mate and then being hit by a parasite and secure energy to that one matthew um similar deal really <laughs> just some sad shit that happens in a from game and then you have to batter someone in the midst of it um but yeah you have to watch a three-hour youtube video to fully understand it <laughs> Yeah, should I have put this in my list with all that in mind? <laughs> I, I think you should, but like you, you have wisely put it in because by not putting it in my list, I am in effect telling people that the room three is better than Bloodborne. Yeah, but uh, you're not. You're just saying that's what resonated with you more in 2015. But you know, I, just, yeah. I authentically like this was a game that was a meaningful part of my 2015. So it was certainly it was certainly one of the only things I really played on PlayStation along with Destiny. So yeah, what's your number seven, Matthew? Well, number seven, better than Bloodborne, is Hand of Fate. Oh, of course. I know, I know you're a big fan of this series. Yes, um, this is by Defiant Development. It's a, I guess, sort of, it's literally a tabletop RPG where you're going on a quest and the idea is that the, the quest plays out as a series of cards that are dealt to you by this dealer that you're up against. Not dissimilar to Inscription, except the dealer is is more of a character. You know, they're they're kind of playing the DM and speaking to you, like, let's see what happens next. And as they turn over the cards, they 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 have a there's almost like a choose your own adventure element to it. Each card is like you're in a you know you're in a forest glen and a fairy heals you, and then you turn over the next card and it's like a bandit jumps out from behind a rock, and then it will switch to a sort of third person sort of brawler system, kind of. Batman-ish, God of War-ish, I guess, um, where you fight bandits off. Um, what what I've always loved about this is is the the kind of playfulness of that card format and the idea of this person kind of dealing out an adventure that changes every time. Um, there is an element of deck building to this where you change the cards that are in a deck, so you're getting dealt like certain events that are going to like help or hinder you, or certain equipment cards that are going to help or hinder you. So like you're trying to kind of like stack the deck in you to create a story in your favor or create a series of events which you're going to sort of see through to the to the boss of each of these little mini campaigns um you're kind of accruing cards as you go through and um adding like events that you can potentially kind of bring into the game um when they're dealt um like the length of the campaigns, you know, they're, they're sort of short little kind of like bursts of adventure. So they're kind of like short enough that you don't mind replaying them, but kind of unfair enough that you that you'll kind of want to replay them and see like what a good result looks like in certain events. And um, it's yeah, one I've struggled to explain before, but um I, I think as a as a way of taking kind of like real world card games 
a slightly different approach to a collectible card game and kind of wrapping it up in something which is kind of truly of its own you know it isn't a it isn't a deck builder you know it's not a slay the spire or anything like that it's a it's a third person adventure built on this card system which i really dig um and i think like the writing and like delivery of of the of the dealer character like very elegantly like mimics the kind of goading of someone you know like there's a lot of like specific dialogue that kind of reacts to what you're doing or things that have happened and it's a very good illusion of like oh i really want to beat this this sort of mysterious sort of fucker in this game so um yeah the sequel was much better but this this one kind of came out of nowhere and made a made a fan of me so i feel like it has to be part of my 2015 story yeah very good matthew i i do still think that if this came out like after slay the spire or monster train and games like that i know it's not exactly the same thing yeah i feel like interesting games that have a card element to them just spiked massively around like the end of that decade you know um, yeah, yeah, and then maybe, by the... but then like the Hand of Fate two came out twenty seventeen. Yeah, era and it's and it's like way more ambitious and and developed the idea, but um, yeah, unfortunately, I think Divide Development have closed since Hand of Fate two didn't do amazingly well. That sucks, but yeah, I think it does suck. I think it was the second one. Did the second one come up in Indie Games Hall of Fame? I think it did. Oh, um, maybe yeah, yeah. yeah maybe I think he talked. I did definitely. Uh, it yeah, I've cool. definitely talked about it at some point. Yeah, interesting. It's uh, yeah, a cool, cool addition to your list. Uh, we've had no crossover so far, have we? Not a single oh, game. I, I'm wondering if, like, well, there's got to be some in here. Yeah, you'd think so. Maybe the next one of mine? Let's see. My number six is Batman Arkham Knight. Is this on your list? It's higher. Ah, finally, we got there. What's your number six? My number six is the visual novel Stein's Gate. Okay, not on my list. Are you shocked to hear that? <laughs> no, not at all. PS3 Vita game came up in our uh, conversation about best visual novels with Lucy. Um, It's just a really good story. It's a really good time travel story about a mad scientist who invents a time time machine using a microwave that allows him to send uh, mobile phone text messages into the past and thus change the future, change his current reality. And it's a class. It's a classic butterfly effect story of characters fucking up the timeline and then desperately trying to fix things really takes its time really establishes these characters um so you do care about their fates and you want to give them a happy ending like you don't really make that many key choices like the story branches i don't know 15 places or whatever and this is a game you're going to be playing for tens and tens of hours so it's really at the the non-interactive end of of the visual novel spectrum this isn't like an ace attorney or a danganronpa or anything like that some people don't i remember lucy was quite down on the characters um like they're all quite super obnoxious um that wasn't as much of a problem for me um thus its inclusion on the list um and i know that some of the storylines are a little bit dubious there's some stuff about a trans character that isn't like maybe great (laughs) in this day and age it is beloved as a as a time travel story um it's it's really really like densely done. It probably lived better on Vita if you can find it on Vita to play it. Uh, I don't know if you can still buy it on there, but um, you know, it, sitting there playing this static art and text on the TV isn't maybe the best place for it. Um, mm. But yeah, I I really like it. I know I just like time travel stories. Also, you can get it on Steam and then play it on Steam Deck, I guess, Matthew. So oh yeah, that perfect. 
yeah ideal way to play it i'm sure it will end up on switch at some point uh yeah that was good i i um i, I can never quite remember which one this was of that batch to be honest but uh yeah i sort of like i know you're still fairly you're pretty discerning with this genre so you'd only pick something huh. you truly thought was decent you know um yeah it's just a good yeah it's just a good yarn and it, it like a, a bit like zero escape it folds in you know a lot of like real world science or like real world events or sort of philosophy or just like weird stuff that kind of exists in the kind of sort of public sphere in a way that i'm not saying it grounds it but it it, it gives it a few sort of footholds that kind of catch the imagination you know when it references like some strange events that happen then you look them up and you see that they did happen online like there's this uh, strange character appeared on forums claiming to be from the future and sort of convinced people in the early internet days that he was from the future and it kind of talks about that and i don't know it just sort of yeah caught my imagination that sounds decent yeah i like the subject of that that's cool it's like it's pretty i've seen it pretty cheap in a bunch of steam sales so uh yeah i don't know i've got it under below my list uh underneath danganronpa matthew so i just gotta play like four of those or whatever and then um i can get to this um do you watch the anime because there's an anime based on this right yeah i I haven't but it's just i think you can just watch that and it's just the story of this probably in a more manageable interesting um, yeah form so yeah okay cool uh my number five then matthew is her story is that your list it isn't interesting should we talk about that first how come it didn't make your list i why isn't it on my list i had an unfortunate experience with her story in that like the fourth thing i typed in kind of cracked it all open for me and then i didn't have the journey a lot of people had yeah which is the risk you run with this game and like there was stuff beyond that but the the whole kind of like i had notebooks full of notes and all this that just wasn't the experience i had with Mm. this particular game um also you know i do love crime stories but i like specific kind of crime stories this one's quite like psychological it's quite sort of based in the 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 minds of, of, of a person in the mind of a person um and that like that kind of isn't my jam as much yeah you know like the stories i'm drawn to are a lot more black and white and have like a fixed ending you know the whole magic of her story is that kind of the journey through it that you take will probably change your perception of the character and 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 what you think happened and like i don't know i'm just not as interested into like things that are that open to interpretation but that's just a purely personal preference yeah this is the man who likes <laughs> japanese crime fiction where they explain in minute detail this happened at this time and then yeah and yeah. this <laughs> this piece of string had to be 15 centimeters because <laughs> of this and i'm like good <laughs> order is restored good good crime yeah thumbs up um yeah so i suppose like the reason i put it here is it was incredibly fresh and exciting in the course of like I guess this sort of indie boom that happens towards the beginning of the 2010s, uh, arguably at the end of the the noughties, it like it brings all of these different old genre types back to the fore. So this is the year that like Pillars of Eternity uh, comes out, but obviously before this you had you know um, the rise of Metroidvanias again, and basically every genre you can name has had some kind of revival now, from the you know Doom style first person shooters to old school rpgs to like city builders anything you can name simulation games they all came back in this period this was the 
FMV adventures time to come back, basically. And it arrived in this very specific form of you are at a police computer sorting through this archive of clips, interviews with what appears to be one woman about the um, death of her partner, a man called Simon. Um, but then it emerges there are there are there are actually two women who are being interviewed in these tapes. Um, and so you are essentially picking through these clips until you have a solution to what happened. And you can stop at any time and feel like you've satisfactorily solved what's going on. Or you can, you know, get every single clip until you have absolute clarity on on what's going on. But then, like, uh, there's a, like you say, there's a heavy ambiguity element to it. But I think that, like, the if you don't stumble across a solution straight away like you did the act of that's overselling how much of it i understood but yeah (laughs) the act of like dipping into these clips and the strangeness of finding something out of context and trying to piece it together in this puzzle like fashion was like super fresh and different it meant the game wasn't like massively dependent on other gameplay mechanics it was all about the story and it was all about your relationship with the story based on keywords and the, the different rabbit holes that would, that would take you down um i think you just can't underestimate how fresh this was in the moment and like mm. obviously this is kind of like sam barlow's subgenre now basically like the um immortality is a similar deal i've not played um telling lies matthew but is that the same thing i assume so yeah probably of of his three games the one i like the most okay interesting um big logan marshall greenhead matthew castle uh... I don't know, just sort of the thr- I don't know the, the actual like thriller framing of it. I'm I'm more into yeah, that it, setting. Certainly, like critics went went um, all out for this. I remember on PC Game. I think we were one of the first outlets to review this, and Andy Kelly got right right behind it. Um, yeah, and I, was it you told me like there was like uh, that Golden Joystick that year? The actress in this and Danny Wallace were playing were bowling or something and people were just like forming a circle around them was that you told me about that i can't remember <laughs> no but i have heard that someone maybe <laughs> yeah. that was dan dawkins telling yeah. us on that episode maybe yeah. that might have been that yeah yeah um so yeah like you say a lot of ambiguity in fact i full-on didn't understand what happened to the in this game until years later when someone explained it to me but certainly the experience of sitting at that fake computer interface and picking through these clips just yeah fresh and exciting and something that got me yeah, really pumped about video games in 2015, Matthew. Um, despite yeah. your apathy towards it. No, yeah, it's like no shade on it. I hope, I hope I've you know explained, given my particular personal interests, why this particular story doesn't like quite quite gel with them. I feel like I'm I'm like outside a really exciting kind of her story appreciation party like the whole time well that was um, that was us with immortality last year as well right where we were like yeah you know didn't you know, quite you... yeah didn't quite land for us but yeah these things happen indeed they do matthew so what's your number five <laughs> again like no her story and no bloodborne but we do have tales from the borderlands <laughs> oh good well that's um that's a good pick because i feel like we have perennially left telltale games out of this partly because sometimes the episodes spill over different years um and i know that you are a, a big a big fan of this one um you've previously called it the only funny borderlands game matthew and uh yeah i mean that, i mean that's that's the uh, boring line i'm gonna trot out again now the idea of a purely narrative experience set in the borderlands universe sounds like death on paper i mean i can't really imagine anything worse than that game with just the writing of it um but this i thought was brilliant it you know the whole telltale game thing navigating a kind of maze of moral quandaries and 
actually here. It's about navigating a comic universe and how much of an asshole you're going to be, really. You know, the two characters, Fiona and Reese, one of them's a con woman, the other one's a sort of Hyperion stooge. So they're both sort of slightly compromised from the off. It's structured around the idea that they're telling their story of how they kind of came to be in the place they are at the start of the game to this masked stranger, but they have, like, competing accounts. So there's this, like, comedy Rashomon thing going on. They're kind of overwriting each other's versions of history. I just thought the way this took the pressure off the, the like, life-and-death consequences and made it more about just trying to, like, enjoy this funny story and, and be, like, genuinely curious where it's going to go and liking these characters and you know enjoying their company and wanting them to succeed and reach a happier place rather than simply survive you know the stakes are so much higher in like the walking dead say you can just enjoy the writing of this one a lot more takes lots of stuff which left me cold in borderlands but works really well here like the um uh i think like the the hyperion corporation and the kind of the sort of parody of like this sort of extreme capitalism is is this is where it lands for me finally handsome jack who i wasn't crazy about um in the other games i think he's a really funny presence in this um it does the classic opening set to a pop tune of the moment um which is just incredibly stylishly done like really really good like music video entries that set these off really great quick time events that uh, have some daft concepts. It's a big, uh, like, imaginary sort of shootout, a bit like the finger guns in Spaced, oh, um, nice. but, like, on a much bigger scale, done as a big quick time event, and it's just a, a really great set piece. Um, yeah, like, I don't know. that I played a lot of Telltale games in 2014, 2015. I think we were also juggling, definitely juggling Game of Thrones... There was the episodic stuff of Life is Strange. There was just a lot of this going about, and this was the one where I would always look forward to the next episode, and I thought it just really delivered this kind of sort of heist con story across the five. Um, I've not played the new one, but I've heard it's quite bad, and I've been told by fellow fans just not to touch it, so I'm not going to. Comedy Rashomon is such a great idea for a game like this. Um, like, mm. I, I don't think Rashomon's ever really been done, elsewhere in video games and it's like it's something you see in tv shows like all the time they have their rashomon episodes so the idea of doing it a game like a narrative game is actually kind of genius you know it's like oh yeah that's a great idea why has no one done that kind of thing um yeah really good um yeah never played this one but i was always kind of quite struck by the goodwill towards it because certainly like the humor in borderlands is such an acquired taste and i've every pretty much everyone i know has taken exception to its it's it's tone um mm. so yeah please just kind of won you over this seemed like from reading about what the collapse of telltale this seemed like the one that had the least resources as well matthew and yet despite that it was like a labor of love to bring it to life so pretty cool yeah. that it's earned its reputation at least you know yeah it's so much funnier than anything else they ever did right yeah and they've done other like comedy games you know they've done like guardians of the galaxy is probably trying to go for a similar kind of vibe and minecraft story modes like allegedly a comedy game um <laughs> but this one like it's not just funny by their standards it's funny by any video game standards it has jokes which if they were in films or tv shows you would just laugh out loud at like the timing and delivery yeah you- it's a really great joke about he's got this um Reese's got this really like nerdy sidekick. I cannot remember his name. 
there's a bit where he's take off his shirt and he's like weirdly hench for such a small man and everyone's just slightly like put off by it that's really good <laughs> that's awesome i think like, the other thing that happens at this point too is that like the other telltale games it, it stops being seen as special as a format people start taking it for granted and there is there is already too much of it and then they, yeah. re- they reach saturation point in the next couple of years and so like the idea of one thing to stand head of shoulders above like i don't think anyone's ever told me what they think of that game of thrones game or i I think a couple of people like the batman games that i know but you know yeah. i've no one's ever talked about that guardians of the galaxy game they did either you know like it just <laughs> it really feels like yeah this is the one this and the walking dead's like first yeah. series those are the ones that have truly lived on you know so yeah yeah they kind of parrot that's the, like they're parodying it like in tales from the in borderlands like it's it's sending up these mechanics which they then do in like another six games but if you could send it up now like they're already played out like they're already done yeah um but this should have been this should have been like the full stop on it but mm. it's not there's like another like six or seven of these games coming <laughs> out i mean it's mad how many of these things they made yeah absolutely okay good well um good pick matthew that's so uh, nice to hear that so high in your list so we're on my number four right yes my number four is fallout four is that on your list it isn't yeah, I didn't think it would be. This feels like a game that was not loved from this year. Um, it was a game where everyone agreed it was like a step forward in some ways and a step sideways in others. So mm. Fallout 3... I loved it as a mag editor. Thank <laughs> you for the sales, Fallout, Fallout 4. Yeah. God bless you. <laughs> Certainly, like, hype for this was out of control. There was a lot of, like, merch that went along with Fallout. I think, like, cushions and stuff like that or with, like... That bloody vault boy on it. I was like, wow, he truly has gotten everywhere. Um, <laughs> bloody vault boy. Yeah. So this came along and, like, for, well, actually, let's just more context. So Fallout 3 comes along in 2008 and it's the first game in a long time, a sequel to some beloved PC games, a very specific com- dark comedic tonality to them. Um, but like much loved and then bethesda acquires the rights of interplay makes fallout 3 translates that world into 3d like makes it makes i would say a like a much more sober version of that world still funny in some ways and very gruesome and recognizably the same fiction but very much its own thing at the same time becomes an enormous success they get some of the original creators who work at worked obsidian to work on new vegas a game that took it a bit closer to that more open-ended um darkly funny uh, style of the original PC games that created a lot of baggage with like people who liked Obsidian's version more than Bethesda's version. Having someone who worked on PC Gamer um, and looking at the comments at that time and the Facebook comments, they were fucking tedious people. I'll be honest. Fallout Four came along and it felt kind of like Fallout Three in replay in some ways. Like it looked tons nicer, had much much better gunplay and better mechanics generally. But I think like largely felt quite similar. Um, this is despite the fact that the story in this is is pretty different um but it's kind of like an inverse of the fallout 3 story and that feels by design in some ways in the first game you are this um kid who leaves a vault looking for their father in this you are a parent leaving the vault looking for their son and um you even get to experience when the nukes go off basically in this game you run into a vault you wake up your partner has been killed your son has been taken and you have to go looking for him um a really really effective opening 
But the truth is, this game doesn't do loads radically different to Fallout 3. It is pretty a pretty similar deal. Well, the biggest thing they added was like the the opportunity of like to to customize settlements, a, a system that I think was a very acquired taste and not really a taste I acquired truthfully. But nonetheless, I still enjoyed a whole bunch of this. They added like I think like you wearing power armor. That was something they added to this one, and you maintaining and upgrading a kind of like power armor, so you'd become a, a deadlier military force. But despite the similarities to Fallout 3, I love their depiction of Boston in this. I thought like the downtown Boston area felt really kind of like vivid and quite cool. I love the fact there was like a settlement inside a stadium. There were some great sort of side characters like Nick Valentine and Piper, the, the journalist, really fond of her as well. Some of them were, were required taste, but um, you got to choose your companion to go with you at all times. That's mm. um, one way it changes a little bit from the last game. That companion stuff is much more involved, Matthew, mm. which seemed like a good choice. It felt a bit more like you had an RPG party on the go, I suppose. Um mm. And had the side quests I love with the um where you basically become the um the, the comic book character, the um uh, I've not written down their name, but like the uh, radio show host is a big fan of this old combat character. You get to get the costume and you solve crime. Not the Flash, the Shadow? No. It's something like the Grey Ghost, but that's the Batman animated yeah. series one. It's like a similar deal. It's, um, mm. yeah, but either way, like that quest really, really worked because you go around in this very preposterous voice being a vigilante. Fantastic stuff. The rest of the story pretty similar beats to fallout 3 honestly particularly when you get to the end and there's another big mech that marches through the city like feels like a a rerun in fallout 3 in just a few too many ways and maybe Mm. people at the time wanted something a a bit new and a bit more different matthew but i'm guessing you played this too right yeah i I played loads of it I i did think about putting it on my list but um i just i just found it too i found it too baggy i, th- I think the addition of like like never-ending stuff like missions that sort of auto-generating stuff with the sort of settlements and whatever his name is preston garvey i fell into the trap of like oh well i'll exhaust that that's kind of how i play these games i sort of go to a place and i do all the quests and i got pulled into something which turned out i think was almost sort of randomly generating more and more and more for me to do right and so i just burnt out on this game before i ever really made a dent on any of the the really bespoke interesting stuff mm. um that's that's my big problem with it it's it, it you know it, it was designed for 400 hours and i i i wandered into some of the 100 hour stuff without kind of getting to the good 30 hour version <laughs> yeah that's that is easy to do in this um and it's a shame because I think that like some of that stuff is very memorable. It's a silver shroud, by the way, Matthew is the uh, oh okay uh, the combat quest. But um yeah, the, but I think I think in the best games of two thousand eight, I had Fallout three at number one. So number four, I suppose, represents my relationship with it. I will say that, like I say, the combat tons better. There was a Tommy gun in this that could fu- that shot exploding bullets, and that gun fucking ruled. I just carried that around for like fifteen <laughs> hours at the end and had a great time. Really good, and technically was a lot um was a lot more solid than fallout 3 was so mm. uh definitely had some like improvements but um yeah as big features go the settlements thing just wasn't quite for me um felt like it was tapping into like more of that i guess like minecraft age of things um yeah and, i just yeah. worry there's gonna be a lot of that in starfield uh, yeah it may it, there might be but if it's set on like loads of different planets i'm not sure how wise it is to try and tie you to one place you know um so yeah i guess we'll yeah. see that game is still an unknown quantity in a lot of ways yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay cool what's your number three matthew um uh, my number four ah is sorry batman arkham knight i i just I, for me do, do i prefer is it my favorite one 
I don't know. I sort of I, I, I go to and fro on it. I think the actual fantasy of being Batman in a tra- more traditional Gotham City is delivered in this better than Arkham City, purely because Arkham City is that slightly contrived, like, Arkham Asylum version of the city. Like, the idea of this area which has been penned in by big walls, this feels a little bit more like, you're just Batman, doing, you know, having a general Batman adventure, you're having a general kind of Batman time, and it feels like things can happen a little bit more organically. I love how they surface some of the side con- uh, side side quest content in this, like, um, when that that famous moment where you're just gliding around and then man bat kind of gives you a horrible scare just felt like oh what a clever way of of this happening it felt like that could happen in multiple places maybe it can't maybe i got that wrong but um i thought yeah i just if this feels like more alive more open as a world which is really all i wanted you know to have to experience with this particular iteration of batman um, on top of that, I'm just wowed by the polish of it. I just think this is one of the most beautiful games of the generation. This is a studio that is just so fucking good at polish and like their ambition. That that mad bit where you like throw the batarang to scan, it follows the batarang out of your hand all the way into the sky, and then it's looking down on the city and all this kind of stuff. Like they just there's just so much showing off in this game, which I always I always enjoy and. You know, the black mark against this and the reason some people are de- more down on it against, you know, compared to the others, the Batmobile. I, I, you know, I've said before, I don't have a problem with it. I think they um, elegantly find a way to make it fit into the rhythms of how this Batman game functions um, outside of the car. I think they find, you know, maybe it feels a bit daft by having this car that can like dart out the way and, you know, big uh, lines of fire so you can dodge around it and everything. But I've I've always thought that was a really elegant solution to giving you a really cool piece of kit and making it work. So, yeah, I'm tired of defending the Batmobile. <laughs> the, yeah. the Riddler tracks are shit. Yeah, I think the Batmobile is flawed, honestly. Like, I, I don't think it ruins the game or anything. I think it's just like, it's a caveat, it's an acquired taste, it's... Yeah. It's, it's simplistic in a way that the rest of the Batman armory is not simplistic. It asks, but, it's part of, but it is part of a combat-like dance that Batman's part of. It is, you know? it is, but that dance is just firing a turret, firing a machine gun, and then just, like, dodging from side to side, and it doesn't add up to yeah. much more than that. No, Whereas, but, uh, you know, uh, the sophistication of the stealth mechanics or the oh, combat yeah, oh, yeah. mechanics, by comparison... It's, yeah, it's it's weaker. Um, oh yeah, abs- absolutely. But I think there is something that I think they've 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 tried to address it and they've thought about it in terms of, you know, how do, how does this sit alongside our other systems in some way that makes sense? Yeah. And I I was always I was pleasantly surprised when I first played it, and whenever I come back to it, I'm still like, you know what? I think this is okay. <laughs> We've got a Batman episode in us at some point. I'm convinced of it. Like we could totally do that. I think like the Tomorrow one was sort of that, but it it was it was maybe a bit curtailed. Like we could do a longer mm. one, I think. But like I my complicated relationship with this was I was a bit down on the Batmobile stuff, but yeah. I also knew that the Batmobile was a fantasy as a Batman fan. I wanted to see realized in a game properly, and this game does that as well. So even if you discount the combat element of it, the yeah. increased scale or the way that the Batmobile could even be woven into the hand-to-hand combat, how it would, like, shock enemies when it bumped into them, how you could use it as a finishing move in hand-to-hand combat, Mm. fucking ruled. And the experience of turning up to a place 
and then like jumping straight out into a like a glide with momentum um as you did like batman vigilante stuff that was the fantasy and they did it mm. like it was the like you say the it was a culmination of everything they've been building up to that you know arkham asylum you know sort of corridor based conf- confined setting batman experience arkham city you know almost an open world like a, a whole a big taste of what a proper batman experience feels like done incredibly well within you know increased scope of mechanics more and more mm. batman villains then this is like the ultimate depiction of batman's universe in one game it just tremendous and still uh, still like looks incredible i've been playing gotham knights this week it looks worse than this for sure but it plays so much worse and right it makes you appreciate what those games did incredibly well and how it could have just been like old Assassin's Creed combat and so much worse, but instead like it was just the free flow combat system was just miraculous as a creation. It just mm. it maybe wasn't like as sophisticated as playing like a fighting game or Sekiro or something, but it felt so good in the hands and was such a yeah, good fit yeah. for Batman and exper- you it re- rewarded your experimentation. Um yeah, it's, it's it's great, and this also like it brought in some elements, Matthew, that I thought really added to it. Like the, to be honest, like why didn't they make a Batman and Robin or a Batman and Nightwing game based off of this? Because yeah. those sections where you team up and like go clear out, clear house, basically work so so well. And obviously, like Rocksteady knew how to write these characters as well. So it's actual good Batman fiction inside a Batman right. game. Fucking great, man. Um, so yeah, it's. The, uh, the, uh, the the Batmobile is not the be-all and end-all of this game. There's loads yeah. to love about it. You know? uh, Arkham Knight? Were you on board with the Arkham Knight? Uh, no. Bit of a bust. No, only because it was the same story they did in The Return of the Red Hood in um, the comics, except right. with a different character. So, And also, I think you just needed... I've definitely talked about this before. You needed the Jason Todd thing to have existed previously for that to land as well as it should. Yeah. Um, but he, he looked cool. <laughs> he looked very Unreal Engine. You yeah. know, he looked like he could have been in Gears of War or something. Um, yeah, it was it was a cool idea. Still want to know what fucking magic they did to make this game look as good as it does, Matthew. Oh, uh, it looks so good. They should have like just like yeah. the confidence, the way the camera moves between different modes and different moves, and the way it moves into like cinematic sequences and out of them. It's just there. What what a gift. Yeah. Know? It's like you say, like the the way that like um you could sort of zoom the camera out to get like a wide perspective of the city and stuff. It just felt like so far ahead technically. Like you were just getting, it just felt like there were no shortcuts in making this happen. Um, really mm. good, best looking rain in games maybe to date still. Um, good stuff, Matthew. Uh, so what are we on now? My number three. Your number th- three. Yeah. So my number three is Hotline Miami Two. Wrong number. Oh, not on my list. Yeah, and I doubt it's on many people's lists from this year. Um, I've definitely said my piece on this before. It was discussed in the best games of the generation, where I think I had it quite high too. Um, apologies, by the way, if some of my games in this uh, list clash rankings-wise with that. That was like two and a half years ago. What can I say? I'm a different man now, maybe, allegedly. So yeah, Hotline Miami was this top-down, you know, like uh, incredibly violent 
indie game where you essentially was a score attack game, but it was all about this, how you build combos in these um, corridor-based combat scenarios where you're picking up melee weapons, battering a guy, throwing your weapon at someone to like knock them down, killing them while they're on the ground, picking up their gun, shooting at the guys who are just busting through a corridor. Oh, they heard your gunshots. Now there's even more guys turning up. And then like rapidly restarting and restarting and restarting to get the highest score possible in these different levels. Second one is more of the same with a more experimental out there story multiple playable characters jumps around timeline wise the le- some of the levels are gigantic which proves quite controversial um it means it has lower lows than the original hotline mammy but i think higher highs as well um i think as well like the the sort of uh sort of like i guess vapor wave aesthetic of hotline mammy became so huge and the, the the music really spoke to that the choice of like um sort of contemporary vaporwave artists and uh electro and i'm really fucking out of my depth of music man that's why we've not done a best video game <laughs> i mean I, I i have no i i'm even more out of my depth so to me i'm like holy shit samuel really knows what he's talking about <laughs> i think it is like vaporwave aesthetic is technically accurate but cool. i just like i'm sure but the, <laughs> but the soundtrack i'm like i'm so lucky my co-host is so cool <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, you really believe that after all this time, Matthew, that I, uh, <laughs> I am that guy. Um, but I love, like, the music in this is just so incredible from, like, um, the Green Kingdom's dreamy, weird opening music with, it's like, it's just incredibly chill and, like, mournful, like, menu music as, like, the cityscape of Miami fades in. so many memorable tracks like um decade dance by jasper burn uh like in the face of evil by um magic sword and i think um the uh, there's like the best level in this game is like a heist like a like a heist crew basically busts into this building and the perspective shifts between multiple characters they're like okay i'm in i just killed these guys it's your turn and then you play the different the different members of the heist as it happens and the music that plays during that sequence i think it's roller mobster by carpenter brute absolutely fucking unbelievable that might be one of my like 10 favorite moments in games i've played that level and over and over again it's just so intense dramatic and exciting and hotline miami at its best and it's like set pc in a way that the first game never was the first game always felt like just a taste of what they could do and this game was just like Right, here's the here's the full breadth of everything we can do with this formula. We're gonna add a badass flamethrower. Some of the levels will be too big. You'll be fighting these giant army bases that drive you a bit mad after a while trying to actually complete the damn thing. But um I don't know, man. For me this was like the the real deal. It was just ambitious over the, real the top. Deal. Yeah. Um but I'm guessing you never played it, Matthew. Did you play the original much? Yeah, yeah, I played I played the original through a couple of times. I'm not I'm not an obsessive, but you know I liked it enough. What a vanilla take for a game that demands more than a vanilla take. <laughs> but so it goes. My number three is so different from Hotline Miami Two. It's Ori and the Blind Forest. Of course, of course. Ah, oh, the lovely. Uh, I'm really the only Xbox at the time exclusive um, that 
that was exciting. Probably the whole time I was on uh, OXM, or is that unfair? Mm, Forza Horizon I liked. Um, yeah, but this, you know, we had such a bad run of, of first-party exclusives. You know, we it just felt like no, nothing was going on. I think this year was, you know, Halo 5's not on my list. And there was a some theme park game that I wasn't crazy into. But this... Yeah, this gorgeous uh, 2D sort of Metroidvania looks like an animated film. It's this incredibly multi-layered, you know, layer upon layer upon layer of sort of parallax scrolling and 3D modelling and all kinds of trickery to make this image look as rich as it possibly can. Um, I'm not a big fan of, of like, very, like, hand-drawn kind of... 2d styles you know the like the way forward the kind of animate you know when people really overly animate something often leaves leaves it feeling very um uh very sort of dead and static and you can sort of feel the kind of animation movements playing out but um this this sort of doesn't do that it just feels incredibly alive there's all this sort of rustle of nature and the wind in the trees and it's got this slightly kind of sort of sort of hippie-ish kind of you know uh, you know mother tree and you know this natural spirit trying to kind of bring balance to this sort of forest which is kind of hilarious because as an actual kind of you know metroidvania action platformer it's surprisingly hard as nails um very very um demanding platforming with a very very versatile character you know skills obviously developed through the game as they do in metroidvanias um but beyond your classic kind of like double jump and wall running he also has this power it he she i don't really know what ori is it has this power to uh launch off enemies and projectiles and this for me is the power that makes this game i have spoken about it before in our switch hall of fame um but this ability to kind of turn attacks into sort of platforms to launch you into something else lets them build these just wild gauntlets where you just don't touch the ground for you know great long stretches and you're like holy shit is this really gonna work and it also allows them to build boss fights which instead of you're fighting a monster you're trying to escape so it's like chase sequences it's escape as boss fight which which i really loved um yeah so like to have a, a genuinely challenging platformer a genuinely lovely feeling platformer great feeling character outside nintendo one of the great platforming feels for my money um and yeah all wrapped up in this this luscious uh visuals and gorgeous music uh, gareth coker the composer like just sounds so good this was one of the only games ever on oxm where we were playing it i remember like some of the official playstation people coming over and being like Oh, we're actually envious of that. Right, like, that never ever happened. You know, with with like first party games on Xbox, no one gave a shit. Um, but this one like drew a small crowd. Um, I prefer it to the sequel. I think. Uh, I think it's a bit of a purer Metroidvania. Uh, the sequel's a bit more sort of Zelda-y. It has kind of a branching structure, which it has some problems. We can go into that another time. But, uh, yeah, I just thought this was so good. I just, oh, heavenly. I absolutely love it. Beautiful version on Switch as well. So, yeah, really, like, available to lots of people. Yeah, this, what I found, um, I definitely said this in that previous podcast, but, like, how could something so beautiful be so harsh? Um, it mm. really did demand scale of you. It was, it's so, so, 
sometimes um, reminded me actually like when I was playing um, Metroid Dread and I was doing those spark shine challenges I was like right. this is what Ori feels like all the time you know what I mean like that <laughs> just is yeah. that fair do you think is like uh, uh, you know pulling off these almost miraculous kind of like platforming feats yeah you know? like they're still quite positive yeah I guess they're, 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 yeah there's, there's there's some similarities there um, I think the difference is Ori has this like interesting system where you set your own checkpoints right using your energy so like you know you will have less combat energy because you've put down this point and where like a lot of its difficulty comes from the fact that people don't get into that rhythm they forget to put their own checkpoints down so when they die they go back really far because you haven't got into the rhythm but if you get into the rhythm of like i'm just going to place these like whenever i'm on safe ground or you know whenever i get over something nasty you can make things more manageable but it's just not how we think about platforming to sort of like create a kind of save point for ourselves like that mm. i don't think yeah so uh, it's it's more about adjusting to its to its rhythm um a safe system they abandoned in the sequel which is one of the reasons it's less interesting oh interesting yeah i suppose i never really thought about the impact of putting that in the player's hands and like how that how transformational that is and how the player uses it or doesn't use it um yeah yeah there, yeah because it costs you to do it so it, there, there is a there is a bit of like a how safe do i want to play this can i risk going further than i would normally go and um there's a lot of like instant death stuff in this game so mm. um a system like that only works if there is challenge yeah you know and likewise in a metroidvania it's another reason i love this game like collecting all the health and all the power-ups and all the hidden things that's only meaningful if you actually run the risk of dying a lot you know right if those things have a have a have a big you know visible impact on how long you survive in the world that makes that exploring worthwhile like metroidvania easy metroidvanias the collective thon element of it is just a huge bust for me always right yeah. um like certain systems only make sense when there is a bit of bite that's one of them that's yeah that's a good take i think i like that uh yeah maybe i will one day like finally conquer this um oh, it's, only, it's, it's still so like ho- holds up like versus other metroidvanias when people like talk about the best like revivals of this genre this is always up there in that conversation isn't it so yeah uh, i mean it's by far like in terms of like production values i mean it's just so lush i mean it's um yeah yeah i think i think it's 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 uh, you know it's in my top five metroidvanias yeah easy Oh, yeah, good stuff. Um, cool. Uh, well, that's a great number three, Matthew. I know what your one and two are, but I don't know what order they're in. So that's uh, interesting, unless there is like a hard pivot from uh, what I think I know about you. Let's find out, I guess. So my number two, Matthew, is Rocket League. So Oh, I completely forgot this was this year. <laughs> yeah, so this game was... Did I like this game? It was certainly compulsive. I played an absolute ton of it this year i played loads of it on ps4 and pc i just kept switching between them because i played it at work and then i came home and i played it at home on my tv and the matchmaking was incredibly fast this game asks what if there was football with cars that's basically what it is you drive a car you knock a big ball into the net 
You do that in a variety of modes, 1v1, 2v2, 3v3, your choice, 4v4 if you want to. Um, 2v2 was always the one, I think. It meant you did all these very dramatic saves because there was very loose gravity to the ball and the way that the cars moved. You could drive up the side of the walls of the um, of the arena and then like do these ridiculous daring flips off of them using like your rocket boost to kind of do these miraculous sort of journeys through the sky to knock the ball in. I was never really good enough to do that properly other than a, a few fluke times. Um, I never truly mastered it, but I had a just a great time. Like scoring a goal in this felt incredible. Um, like the animation of watching the ball go in and explode, and then it kind of knocking all of the different cars away. Just really, really like ah, oh, chef kiss as a kind of like um bit of, uh. bit of feedback to the player. And now you can play this on anything you have. Basically, it's a free to play game. You can just go enjoy it uh, for nothing, which is incredibly generous and cool. Um, but it really was like uh, instant success. Um. You know, the engine of this was the fact that it was a PS Plus freebie when it launched, which was such a good idea. It meant that mm. it was just like the biggest marketing it could have, really, when it was off sale. It just keeps selling and selling. Um, I really liked it, despite the fact that the music in the in the menus was some of the worst shit I've ever heard. Like, I despised it. Like, modern clubby music. I just hated it so, so much. Um <laughs> uh, I even bought a Batmobile um, as DLC in this. Um like I said, I never really got good at it, but like the times where you would pull off an amazing save or you would score something truly miraculous and you'd hit that share button on PlayStation to capture it and then just put it on Twitter or something just felt really, really good. Um, I think this just this was just like a, a such a deserved success. It was such a great version of something so simple and like it was something everyone wanted and it was a low investment multiplayer game that could make you feel incredibly good and you didn't need to be... You didn't need to be like mega precise it to have a good time, I suppose. Mm. Um, did you ever play this, Matthew? Yeah, I, I played it. Like, play, I mean, you kind of had to. Like, it was so sort of prevalent, and um, you know, it was always on Xbox on the, the YouTube channel that I ended up running. So, you know, I had to play a lot of it then. I, I'm just not very good at it. I also don't know if I've just got like a lot of multiplayer, local or otherwise, like in me anymore. Yeah, yeah. I guess the, a little bit. <laughs> I guess the pandemic killed a little bit of that. Uh, I guess. Well, just, uh, just that, you know, the person I have to play against is Catherine. She's just so much better at all video games than I am. She's fucking amazing, um, Smash Bros. Like, uh, just absolutely killer. I can't believe the time she owned us at Smash Bros. Was just like, yeah, uh, we never played it again after that. Uh, so I can see that's why. That's like Matthew. almost single-handedly killed my interest in multiplayer gaming. <laughs> Well, this isn't marriage counselling, uh, so uh, yeah, but that's tough. Um, sorry to hear that. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is best played with like, I, I my, my friend Andrew watching me play this and like what a monster I turned into and him just being like, what the fuck is wrong with you about this is a really funny memory from this year of just like, I don't know, he's him seeing me transform into like the biggest baby you've ever seen. And me documenting that in a series of PC Gamer articles. I, I, think, I feel like I became, this is the first game I became slightly synonymous with on PC Gamer. Um, because mm. I, was, I, was, I was secretly bad at it, um, even though I was pretending I knew what I was doing. Um, yeah, the best. Is anyone, is anyone consistently good at it? I guess they must be. I feel like Rich was better at it than me because I'd see him sharing clips where he'd do like crazy free cam like stunts and stuff, and I could never do that shit. I was just yeah, like, except all Rich's videos got taken down because he kept playing it to like ABBA and um, other bands. Absolutely radiating dad energy. That. That's... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> he'd have all this pop music on in the background, so it all got like taken off YouTube. That's good. <laughs> That's so funny, yeah. That's like uh, that's so funny. That's that is like peak dad stuff. I just can't. <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think he was legitimately good at. It. Um, uh, but but yeah, it was also a game where I just ended up playing it with people I didn't really know. Um, that well, like I played it with the um, TC uh, GS guys at one point. Like this, like I, n- I never played games with those guys, but like that was the. F- did, they, did they do voice chat while you were playing? Yeah, like there's a. I, I recall a bit of Dave Turner's bants. He was. Um, was it like merciless? Nice, no, you know, he's very nice. It's very funny. Uh, I, oh yeah, I, know, I like I like that guys, but I just scared that that like they just <laughs> eviscerate me with with barbs. I think they think that's why we've not done a podcast with them, but that's not the reason. We're just it, fucking making this one podcast is, takes ages, to be honest. Oh, um, that, no, that is the reason I've not done it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've, I've, I can't stand the heat. Don't I don't even step into the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't go in the same building as the kitchen. No, oh. I'm like, there's heat there. I'm getting the fuck out of here. <laughs> okay, that was my number two then, Matthew. What's your number two? My number two is, oh, what a boring pick. It's The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. Ah, then we have the same number one. Ah, all is, uh, the balance is maintained. Um, yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, what's this game about? <laughs> you are Geralt, a witcher. And that is key to why I love this game. It's an open world RPG where you have a very specific role to play you are one particular character with established relationships with loads of characters in this world and crucially uh, an established job you're a monster hunter it gives brilliant context to why you're doing everything every monster you kill that is literally your job to be there if you go into a town everyone comes up to you and asks you to do something you aren't an amnesiac stranger you aren't some sort of bullshit thing you've made in a character creation it is just someone who goes in and has a role and i love role-playing within that character and within the constraints of that character it's it, it's like i don't know it's, i guess it's a little closer to sort of zelda in a way you know you have link and you're like okay i am link in this game and that for me is, is a huge part of the appeal it's i i just really love the the sort of register of its fantasy world i guess in that it's full of monsters and magic but it's primarily kind of people and recognizable people that you're that you're working with um you know the there is all this supernatural stuff but the big problem is like war between nations and so there's something quite kind of relatable in in what drives all those people in that situation like the monsters are almost like another layer of bullshit on top that they all have to deal with so you know you, you can just sort of buy into a lot of the kind of human dilemmas and the kind of frailties and what drives people to do evil deeds and like the murkiness of trying to find the correct answers um it's a lot more kind of game of thronesy i guess in that it's it feels more like people driven rather than kind of like MacGuffin driven um which i which i really like about it there's no one with like a, like a cat's face um <laughs> which like instantly i'm like i'm out uh, it's like oh hello would you care to buy from my store because they always sound like how cats talk in cartoons and you're like fucking yikes um, there's none of that it's just like sour-faced guys from yorkshire and you're like i'm in um has one of the all-timer mini games to the point where like i probably played more gwent in this than i did the witcher 3 for like the first 50 hours of playing this like I actually fucked off the whole I'm a Witcher and I just walked around playing Gwent for so long 
Catherine couldn't stand the theme tune to Gwent. Like, when it would play the music, she'd be like, stop playing that game, because I would play it for hours at a time. And, like, once I had all the cards in my deck, only then did I kind of get on with the with the quests at hand. It's such a simple version of Gwent compared to, like, what it became in the standalone game as well. Like, to go back to it now, it's, like, hilariously rudimentary. But at the time, I was like, I cannot get enough of this. Like, it's the only time I've ever felt that. So, like, I always feel a little bit of envy when you're doing your whole kind of blitzball routine or people are talking about, uh, what's the one in Final Fantasy VIII with the cards? Triple Triad. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. I've never had that, but in this, 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 I went all in on Gwent. (laughs) Um... Yeah, I just it's it's just a really special game. Um great character, great characters, great writing, great quest design, absolutely gorgeous. This is one I played on PC. I thought it looked pretty ropey on console, I must admit. Yeah. Um and it looked so good on PC. I mean this was an absolute powerhouse. Um like sailing around in the boat and seeing like the god rays come through the little rips in the sails. I'll always remember that of thinking like holy shit this pc can do anything um yeah like uh just uh, uh absolutely consumed me had a machine that was just showing this game at its best um like i know it's flawed like i i like i am almost surprised in a way that it's as big as it is right given that there's a lot of bullshit in this game like the combat isn't great and it has a lot of quite confusing systems like the whole alchemy the whole having to kind of drink alcohol to kind of restock certain elements the sort of meditation some of the terminology and just like weird terms it kind of couches its world in like it runs counter to like what like simple audience friendly game design is i often think that the masses did buy into it you know they must just love the world and love the character or maybe we're just you know we maybe we should think more of the general masses and what they're capable of understanding but um yeah i was always like this game still feels like quite janky in a lot of ways um but you know everyone loved it so yeah it obviously didn't matter <laughs> a few things motivated that like it was i like its success i think it was there was no Elder Scrolls this generation, and mm. that was a, pers- a persistently massive series. People did like Dragon Age Inquisition the year, the year earlier, um, mm. but this was like this had uh, specific quests and characters that took on a life of their own in a very specific way. It was like the defining game of the generation in a lot of ways, wasn't it? It was just yeah, just so but massive. It's the fact, but it's the fact that loads of people, apropos of nothing, went. I am super into this third thing that of a series I've definitely not played the other two of yeah. and you were like and it's gonna ho- really like hinge on your like appreciate your appreciation is, is gonna be like tenfold if you have played them like it's just odd to come out there's not many other times people have gone the third one i'm in you know uh yeah particularly for something this hard-edged but you know whatever that's for the analysts to work out i thought this this was um this was so good, and the the DLCs are like all timers as well. Probably my favorite DLC ever. Yeah. Um, so it's funny as well digging into like the cyberpunk quests, a side quest I've been doing recently. You realize that like as beautifully presented as they are, they're not really RPG side quests. They're just like a bit. They're just some kind of cutscenes that happen around some first person right. shooter levels. Yeah. <laughs> and like yeah. these, but these I always get the impression they were proper RPG quests, Matthew. Oh yeah, this is this is like. Yeah, the outcome, even for like the dumbest thing, you know, even if it's just like a jokey difference at the end, there will be a difference. And like, 
side quests that you can't differentiate from the main quests because the quality of them so good um like a big part of this game is it sort of has a mass effect 2 element to it in that like without really realizing it you are like enlisting people to help you in a big set piece mm. And you don't really notice it. And you, you could maybe catch on in that you're playing it and you're like, well, a lot of these quests involve me working with one particular character and at the end of it, we're either on like good terms or bad terms. And then in your time of need, they all crop up. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that's that's sort of how the game's structured. Um, Ooh, like God of War but, Ragnarok, Matthew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, very much like that. Um, better than that. And... But, like, that's the thing. At the time, you're, like, side quest, main quest? I don't really know. You, do, you know, every, everything just sort of, like, has this this bar of quality, which is really how you should be treating everything in a game. Like, it shouldn't be, like, oh, this is side quest, so it's a second-class citizen in some way. It's, it's uh, yeah, really miraculous. Uh, baffling how little of that is in Cyberpunk. Yeah, um, yeah. In hindsight, but, you know... I imagine we'll learn about in 10 years what happened there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I look forward to that article on, uh, you know, what is it, like Forbes or something. What's that? Uh, I can't remember. I'm, just, I'm too tired now at this point. Um, <laughs> um, okay, Good. my <laughs> my number one is the same as your number one, I suspect, Matthew. Everybody's gone to the rapture. I'm, no, I'm, jo- I'm joking. It's, oh, uh... <laughs> imagine. I just love walking around the countryside incredibly slowly. They added a, a, a jog command, or at least I think he got something better faster <laughs> when he ran. Um, Metal Gear Solid Five: The Phantom Pain is my number one. I'm assuming that's yours too, Matthew. It is. Yep. Yeah, so, third-person stealth sandbox game that takes place earlier in the MGS timeline. It's technically a sequel to Metal Gear Solid Three and Peace Walker. It features a base building element alongside two very rich sandboxes where you recruit soldiers to your army by popping them on little balloons and getting them the hell out of there and basically brainwashing them um, to joining your militia. Um, But really, this is a game about experimenting with AI in amazingly vivid places, um, seeing what you can do to finish a level, how how to, like, take out the the soldiers in a given place, seeing what random events take place as a result of the sandbox, using very, very rich AI companions to help you um solve different uh solve the different challenges in the game. Um wrapped up in a story that is oddly light touch for Metal Gear Solid, which is a wise call. This is the best game game, um certainly the best stealth game in the MGS series. It's arguably the worst MGS game in terms of how it uh, fits into that universe, builds on that universe. It argu- arguably falls a bit flat in that respect, but that's okay um, because even if people will bicker f- till the end of time about this game being unfinished because there are two chapters missing or some bullshit and they wanted another mech fight with liquid- Kid Liquid Snake, I don't care about that. Um, <laughs> who fucking gives a shit? Uh, this game rules. It's a great Steam Deck game. I've been playing it on Steam Deck um, recently. Real, real nice. Yeah, it's fantastic, Matthew. Thoughts? Yeah, I completely agree um, about the kind of, like, bad Metal Gear. Probably the best game Kojima's actually made uh, as a game. Um, Like, uh, I think what open world brings to it is is so valuable. Like, the idea of 
approaching these outposts and bases and prisons and whatever it is that you're attacking in each mission from like any angle just opens up so much potential it's a um unlike the his other games which have always been quite like artificial kind of like boxed in spaces that are almost like puzzly in like how you kind of tackle them here you can never get like you're never in total control like there's there's always a sort of weakness there's always an enemy you've missed or the world moves on or someone drives in in a jeep and discovers something like there's this sort of spark of life which keeps you from being fully on top of any situation which is just such a satisfying place to sort of sit in a stealth game Mm. where you're constantly on edge and like the better you are at the game you can kind of take out a lot of the variables and make it safer for you but you can never truly just clear out and like walk this game there's always something that can kind of come back round to nobble you in some way and i think that you know for all of its many many qualities it's it's that kind of core trick that i really love about this it just uh, truly earns and justifies being an open world game through that sort of system yeah at the same time it's like there's a continuous power curve element to it where you are researching new stuff and adding to your armory and revisiting places and like you say because you can because you pick the angle of attack on these locations that makes it unpredictable but it also means you have this like quite unique open world that's basically like you know 10 to 15 different stealth set pieces in that happen to share a space um right yeah, um, yeah which is really unusual and interesting and but it, but it works incredibly well and it means that mgs5 has a lot more of the immersive sim dna than any of the previous games mm. did um and is arguably the best modern immersive sim apart from dishonored 2 maybe i guess um yeah but like certainly in terms of like the sophistication of the mechanics how precisely you have to play it um, I guess I would probably put Dishonored 2 slightly above it. Do I mean that? I'd have to think on that. But anyway. Uh, um, I, whatever this whatever this stealth experience is, I prefer it to Dishonored 2's personally. Yeah, that's fair enough. I think also like it makes its systems incredibly clear to you as a player. Like mm. you understand why things are the way they are, why at night you have you know lower visibility than during the day. Um and like, also the way Snake moves is like better than he's ever moved before. How he can slide oh, around, yeah. and you know, just also just the thing about when you get caught, you have that like one moment to like dart someone in the head before they kind of call in an alert. That's a really mm. good response to like, you know, it's I guess it's like the a more contemporary version of how you used to be able to shoot out the um, you know, like the the walkie-talkie when someone would try and call mm. in for help or whatever. So yeah, just great. Like it's. It is still M- recognisably MGS, but it's just such a step forward. It was also really oddly gratifying, I guess, as a Metal Gear fan to see, like, to feel like, I guess, like a slight scepticism from people with maybe more of that PC stealth, like immersive in background, people playing Thief and stuff like that, for this game to come along and so not trounce those games, but be like arguably the best modern form of that sort of game. Um, yeah, that was quite satisfying from a series that was so often pegged as the long cutscene series. Yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty cool to to see yeah. that happen, and then weirdly ends with him being booted out of his studio. Who fucking knows, man? Confusing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I also add to the thing about like you know it not be a good MGS game in terms of like the lore and the cutscenes and those kind of flourishes on a mechanical level. It still has like the wit of of all the great Metal Gear Solid games yeah 
you know, like the discovery, like the weird behavior of gadgets or like, you know, sliding down on, you know, body boarding on a cardboard box or whatever, you know, the, you know, the, the, the getting your horse to take a shit and then cars spinning out on the horse poo and things like, you know, it's, it's, it's every bit as witty as in a kind of gameplay sense. It's just maybe doesn't have the, you know, hour long bullshit cutscenes that you secretly want from him. Yeah, I just yeah, but the, the... lacks lacks killer boss fights as well. Definitely, yeah. There's only though like I, though I do like the I do like the quiet sniper fight, but we have litigated this before. We have indeed, yes. <laughs> That's fine. We don't need to go over that again. We did a really fucking good MGS podcast on the uh, Patreon actually with Rich. That's like probably the best Patreon episode we did, Matthew. Really, really good. Um. So Definitely yeah, up there. yeah, absolutely. So yeah, MGS Five. It's like um, plus you can um, play uh, Friday. I'm in love uh, by the Cure while you're running around Afghanistan with your dog, and uh, that's frankly what I needed to do in 2015. That was just like therapy for me. So uh, I had a good time. Um, yeah, uh, an absolute masterpiece. Nice to end with a 10 out of 10, Matthew. Proper 10 out of 10. An agreement. We can shake on it. Abs- the best game of 2015. Absolutely. What a great place to to wrap up. Um, do you want to fire through a few of your honourable mentions, Matthew? Uh yeah, can do. Oh, where the fuck are they? Just start with one of mine. Yes. Okay, <laughs> my first one is Broforce. This was a Devolver Digital published game by Free Lives, who had just developed the game Terra Nil, which I look forward to playing at some point. Um, this was a game where you basically played as different uh, '80s uh, action pastiches and like you know your Arnie's, Stallones, and the like, um, with these really rich environmental physics of explosions reshaping the level on the fly. It's a. It's slightly too annoying. I replayed it recently on Steam Deck. Uh, it kills you a few uh, for random reasons a bit too often. I think to be truly up there as one of the best games. But this was something I played a hell of a lot and was a fun cop game to boot. What's your first one, Matthew? Uh, my first one is I had a really good time playing Resident Evil Revelations Two in co-op with Catherine. Fuck yeah, we've never talked about that game on this podcast. Yeah, just I mean, it, it, I don't think it's sort of like mechanically deep enough or kind of interesting enough to make it into the main 10. But this was an episodic adventure, but, yeah, built around the idea of playing in co-op. You could play it single-player as well. Um, but I, what I liked about it is that the um, one pair of the characters was... I think it was Barry Burton and a little girl. Right, that sounds fun. Um, and the little girl is obviously very vulnerable, but she can, like, see things that Barry can't see, like invisible enemies and ghosts, and yeah. she could just point at them to, like, highlight them. But it just it made us laugh so much to, you know, what you turn around and the other, the other person who's playing this little girl would be pointing right at you to try and, like, freak you out. Me and Catherine were always trying to kind of, like, mess each other up with the creepy little girl because she, she wears, like, a little Victorian dress. <laughs> um, it's very, very odd. Um, Barry's just a and, fucking baller Resident Evil character as well. I love that guy. He's just, like, comedic in his presence, you know? Yeah. And, and like, the game does have... Um, it hits a lot of the beats you'd want. You know, it sort of starts off in a prison, but then you get to explore a spooky island. There is a kind of creepy sort of fun house slash mansion element to it right as well so it's kind of ticking off all the, the resi tropes and it ends with quite a spectacular boss fight i think it's so i am i probably prefer it to revelations one um just because the, the the that extra co-op element i think they really lent into it it being episodic kind of worked against it i think um i think more people would have yeah. played it and it would have more of a reputation if they just put it out as one game in the first place but mm. interesting experiment anyway um 
cool. Uh, I have put everybody's gone to the rapture in here, Matthew, um, because okay. I did. I did think. <laughs> I did think it was the music was fantastic, but also I thought it was a great. I would just definitely discuss this before, but a great like bit of world building in terms of, like capturing what a, you know, a sort of like what that sort of I guess like countryside UK setting is like. It's mm. it's sort of it, no other game really does that, and I think um, how vividly it, it achieves that in a place where everyone has disappeared is um, is really up there. Even if I didn't totally understand what was going on in the story, what's the next one? Cool. Um, let's have a little shout out for Xenoblade Chronicles X. Um, not the sequel to Xenoblade uh, that I wanted. Much harder sci-fi, lost the kind of like breezy charm of the original game. Um, the soundtrack, much harder to fall in love with, even though it, it does have plenty of epic stuff. The, the world of it is like a technical feat, and it's often very beautiful, but it's also quite weird and alien. Well, it's literally alien. Um, like just a harder thing to sort of fall in love with you know a harder world harder soundtrack big focus on like big stomping mechs lots of technical military jargon very different to what they've done in the xenoblade series elsewhere but i mean a definitive wii u game it's the only place you can play it it's the metal gear solid 4 of wii u as we've uh christened it before so yeah uh, it has to it has to be worth a shout out yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, nice to have. You've got to mention something Nintendo related in this part of the podcast. So, uh, yeah, pleased to have it in there. In fact, like my next one actually, Matthew is, is Splatoon. So I did play oh. this on Wii U um, shortly, I think, before Splatoon Two came out. And when I was putting away the Wii U for good, <laughs> um, I did give this a go, and I was like, it, it, I actually think like the best time you will ever play Splatoon is the first time you play it. Um, yeah, when you truly understand like how they've made this competitive game that doesn't feel competitive in the way that Call of Duty does, it feels a lot softer, but it is just as satisfying, and the feedback is great, and it has that you know I I, I use this over and over again with Nintendo as a, a point of praise, but how every little interaction and it feels perfect, turning into a squid, swing through the ink, and then um, you know, filling a space with your paint is just like that just feels fantastic um and it's nintendo taking on a completely different genre and absolutely nailing it so uh yeah little shout out there what's the next one uh keep talking and nobody explodes oh is that a vr game uh it can be played in vr mm-hmm. we, did we play it no yeah, yeah no we definitely you can, yeah you can be playing vr i'm sure of it but someone is defusing a bomb uh, the other people have a real-world manual to help them defuse the bomb, so it's kind of co-op, a sort of a asynchronous co-op game. Is that a, is that a thing? <laughs> yeah, Asymmetrical? Yeah. Asymmetrical co-op game? Is that a thing? I, I think they're know. both a thing, but yeah, that sounds about right. Um, but yes, like, the stress of, like, one person's kind of going, oh, this bit of the bomb, it's got this, like, register number on it, and then they're, they're desperately trying to flick to the relevant bit of the manual, and then... Like the way it kind of passes information constantly between the screen and the manual, and who can see what, and like that, both people have enough of a role in that. It's not just as simple as like look it up. There's a lot of kind of like specificity in the language. It's a really really cool party game. Um, we played it on stage at EGX with RPS, um, and it was really good fun. Yeah, really good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, fantastic. I never played that one, but um, always wanted to. That sounds like it'd be good fun at um, a house party if anyone still. Yeah, had those. it's not like <laughs> a. It's not like you and one other person. I think that would be a bit like 
yeah. you'd feel like two people with a bomb, which is probably not a great vibe. Like those old parties Tom Francis used to do, basically. Perfect for those. You a know. room full of people blowing up is fun. Two people is, like, tragic. <laughs> it is a little bit, yeah. Uh, bad vibes. <laughs> that's, that my, that's my bomb take. <laughs> no, I think you're spot on there. That's, uh, that's good. <laughs> okay. Ah. <laughs> uh, uh, my, it's too late. It's it, too late for this podcast. It is, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, D4, Dark Dreams Don't Die. Um, so, oh, yeah. so Touch much, the owl. <laughs> someone asked the question, should we release uh, part of an episodic uh, game exclusively on the Xbox One digitally in its first year? <laughs> and guess what? The answer is it won't sell if you do that. Um, that's a that's a poor idea. Um, Sweary65's weird game about a dude investigating what happened to his wife. Um but a lot of this, the best bits of this game are just hanging out in the apartment with um, his uh, his very, very greedy pal who just comes over and eats food in very disgusting fashion. <laughs> That's got big us energy, Matthew. Um, mm. I really like the vibes of this, that old one, where you don't want to um, talk about um, it in any specific details. So you just say the vibes and then kind of move on. Um, yeah. Did enjoy that about this game. I did think it like looked and sounded and was presentationally way better than Deadly Premonition was, but never mm. got to finish the story, so can only be an honourable mention. What's your next one? Uh, Grow Home. Oh, of course. That look, always looked pretty cool, that game. Yeah, Ubisoft's... Um, I can't remember which studio made it. Reflections. Them. Hmm? Reflections, That wasn't it? The Newcastle yes, one? Yes, that's yeah. right. Um, yeah, kind of like a sort of... Like, physics-y sort of puzzle platform, physics-y platform, where you control this very sort of physically reactive robot who's kind of climbing up you can control his two little hands and you kind of heave him heave him up this giant beanstalk you're collecting seeds to make it branch off into uh, ever new heights um he's very cute he makes lots of little cute noises he says mom and things like that um <laughs> he's got like sort of et or kind of gizmo the gremlin kind of energy just funny little sort of chirruping kind of catchphrases um like you know quite a minimalist sort of art style but really captures this towering scale of this beanstalk that you're climbing um yeah just a real oddity like where's where's the where's the grow home of today you know yeah yeah from ubisoft that is well you know yeah, it seemed like a real kind of one-off this one but um there was a few there were a few different like child of eden or not child of eden child of light um, yeah, and that war one. Yeah, yeah, valiant something or other. Yeah, so yeah, it, it, they did do a few things like that, but now just don't seem to make those kind of games. But um, yeah, this this did always seem cool. Everyone talked up how nice it how nice it felt, the good vibes, and I don't know. Do some people compare it to Mario Galaxy, Matthew? I felt there's a little bit of that, but I don't uh, know. I think it's if anything, it, I mean, they wouldn't have said this. But like the climb, you know, the, the climbing is a little bit more Breath of the Wild. Gotcha. Um, it's a bit more like a, almost like a, one of those. Um, is it Bennett Foddy does like the, oh, yeah. the kind of you're controlling all the limbs kind of games. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> um, yeah, sort of procedural animation, physics based limbs, kind of plus, you know, weird beanstalk climbing equals good game apparently. Good stuff. I'm going to bundle my last two into one, Matthew. Yeah. Uh, even though they're not related. <laughs> um, Destiny, the Taken King. 
Uh, Destiny was uh, finally good because they added some more Nathan Fillion, but they also made a much better campaign for um, year two and added lots of fire hammers, which I enjoyed chucking at lads on the internet. That was what I did in 2015. And then City Skylines, I wanted to mention, which was in the wake of um, SimCity uh, sort of dying on its ass for EA, uh, Paradox came along and uh, released this um, moddable very cool um, version of the city sim they've been basically building on for years and years and yeah i've kind of dipped in and out of it over the years but i think it was a an immaculate version of that kind of thing um so yeah those are my last two matthew any more for you um i guess a tiny shout out for rise of the tomb raider which i found very flashy i mean, it was absolutely gorgeous and it felt nice to have a game with incredible graphics to crow about on lxm and i i thought it was like a, a bit of an improvement on the first one kind of mechanically and like the variety of the areas and whatnot um also a, a tiny little shout out more on Catherine's behalf for steamworld heist mm. um which she loves i've only played a bit of i don't think i've ever finished a campaign of it which is the kind of 2d um strategy game sort of XCOMy. So 2D X, imagine sort of 2D side on XCOM, um, but where you control uh, like the angle of fire to sort of ricochet bullets around the inside of spaceships to kill all these sort of steampunk robots. Um, the steampunk games uh, I sort of admire from afar without ever having like truly loved up close, um, but dabble with them and recognize their quality. Absolutely. Okay. Well, good stuff, Matthew. Steamworld Games getting a nice shout out there. So. That's it. The podcast is done. It was so fucking long. Uh, <laughs> but I hope you enjoyed it. That was the best games of 2015. Matthew, where can people find you on social media? At Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. I'm Samuel W. Roberts. Backpage Pod on Twitter if you'd like to follow us. And Backpage uh, on Patreon is patreon.com slash Backpage Pod. So if you'd like to financially support us, etc. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>